This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Iron Cloud original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Andy McNabb. Andy is a former British SAS soldier who led Bravo 2-0 during the first Gulf War. He was captured, tortured for three weeks before his eventual release. He wrote about that experience in a book called Bravo 2-0, which is one of, if not the best-selling memoirs of modern warfare ever written. He followed that up with immediate action and then Seven Troop and is now the author of over 30 different books. He also helps out consulting in Hollywood to include the Michael Mann robbery heist film, Heat. Amazing guy, fascinating individual. It was such an honor to talk to him. So now, without further ado, Andy McNabb. I mean, I don't even know where to start with you because uh, I've I, I feel like I know you from all the books that I've read and from just diving into Bravo Two Zero when I was a young SEAL. Everybody yep. was reading it back then. Uh, this is the late 90s when I came in. Yep. And there were very few books on modern warfare out there that we could study. Most everything, as you know, is from, from Vietnam that we had to, to look back on at that point. Yep. Um, yep. So this, and we just dove into this and we had so much respect for you guys and everything that you went through. Um, and then since, I mean, you've been an inspiration from when you left the military up until today as well, not just for me, but for so many people making that transition from, from military service. But uh, I'd like to start with your beginning because most people that are dropped off on the step of, uh, as you were, uh, that's that very auspicious beginning. That's a, that's a tough way to start out. Uh, so from, from that point up until you joined the military, can you give us a little bit of a a background on what that was like? Because you joined at 16. Is that is that correct? I did. Yeah, yeah. I joined what was, what was then, uh, well, it's called junior, junior service. So basically, you can put, join the British Army at 16. Um, you can't go on operations until you're 18. But um, I, yeah, I, I, I was in a, I was in a, uh, a children's home till I was uh, about five. And then I, you know, I went, I went into a, um, a house with, a, you know, with parents and was eventually adopted by them. Um, and Basically, I, I just lived in the equivalent, I suppose, of of United States project housing. We call them uh, council housing, you know, social housing. And um, uh, I I had a great well, I thought it was a great time, you know, because I didn't like school. Even now, when I go into schools and and, and you know and talk to sort of pupils about the value of education, to me, it's still even new schools smell like like bold cabbage and old floor polish. You know, <laughs> I just didn't like schools, you know. Yeah. And. Um, uh, and just done, you know, just too much freedom, quite frankly. Uh, and then, you know, as I was getting older, basically what I wanted was money, but without understanding that you needed to get an education and a decent job to, to, to get the money. Uh, so I landed up in um, juvenile detention um, when I was just turning. I was sort of just on 15, 16. And at that time in the UK, uh, we had a system called the Ballstalk system. And it was all about what was called the short, sharp shock. And that was sort of putting, you know, 16, 17-year-old kids into these institutions. And the theory was to give them such a hard time, it would deter them from reoffending. System didn't work. It was, it was rubbish. And it was all dissolved in, in the sort of, I think it was about the mid-80s. Because um, there was no, you know, there was no education, rehabilitation. So a lot of groups to do with social mobility in the UK were lobbying the government and saying, look, we've got to do something about this. 
So they were, you know, people were then allowed to come into the ball stalls and talk about opportunities. And one of those was the army. So um, literally, I joined the army thinking I was going to be a helicopter pilot because that was the you know that was the film that we saw the recruiting film. I thought nice. that that'd be great. Um, and uh, you know it was like it was like this t- little two seater helicopter, and he was flying over the beaches in Cyprus. This guy, yeah, and he's waving at the girls. You know the girls are waving at him. I didn't have a clue where Cyprus was, but it didn't matter. <laughs> I thought, great, I'm going to I'm going to have some of this 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 army business because yeah. the deal was is if you got selected to join the military, you don't have like a three day selection, you know, to see if you you know all your limbs are working. I suppose you know. Yeah. Um, if you got a place in in the in in the army, then you didn't go back to the ball stall. You went home and waited for your you know your your uh, your, your acceptance date. So it was as simple as that. I thought well. Uh, I'll join the army, get out of the ball stall, because uh, the you know the, the the system was the short sharp shock really was you know it, it was it was quite a sort of tough regime. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll get into the army um, and just see what happens. So I landed up not as a helicopter pilot, but uh, there was <laughs> you know they weren't going to let me get close enough to spit at one of those things. <laughs> they knew what they were uh, doing. Yeah, they knew what they were <laughs> yeah, doing. Yeah, exactly. They knew. And I was given a place in the, in the infantry and. Uh, you know what? I didn't even really know what they'd done. You know, I, I was, it was just the fact of getting out the, uh, getting out of Ballstall. And so I joined what was uh, uh, called a, an infantry junior leaders battalion. So uh, in, in the Brit Army, you do 28 weeks basic training before you then do your continuation training, you know, whatever you are, whether you're yeah. an infantry guy or, you know, your trades guy. But if you joined as in, in the uh, junior leaders battalion, what they do, they give you a year's training. And the idea is, is to, so you do all your, your normal basic 28 weeks, but within that, that year as well, what they're trying to do is get you ready to become the future NCOs of the infantry. Okay. And, um, uh, in, uh, you know, I didn't like it quite frankly, when I got there, it was worse <laughs> than the hostel, but the, the, the system works. And, and, and even now within junior service, you know, if you're looking at the, 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 the NCO sort of, you know, cadre within, within certainly the infantry, they tend to be, um, uh, the people who have joined as, as, as 16 year olds and they've got that extra sort of year of training. Got it. And did you know about the SAS at this point? Because this is before Princess Gate. This is before yeah. they really hit the world stage and all those photos went out, you know, with the MP5s and the whole deal. Yeah, did you hear yeah, about yeah. them yet? Did you know about them or were you? I, uh, I, I didn't really know about them until I was um, 18 and I was in the battalion. And the war choice at that stage was uh, the, the the conflict in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So we used to do these things called emergency tours every year, which were four to five months, no more than five months a year. Um, and what was what was known as a regiment, special air service within the you know within the environment, it's just simply called the regiment. So you'd have these lads turn up, you know, and they're talking long air and hey, yep. you know they're driving civilian cars and all you know they've got weapons hanging off them everywhere. So we weren't allowed to speak to them, but I, I knew they existed. And they would come in, you'd see them now and again. They would disappear and they'd go and do. They were doing a lot of ambushes around the, in the border area yeah, between the, the you know the uh, the Free State and, and Northern Ireland, yeah. and um, uh, so I, I sort of knew them, I knew of them, but it, it, in those early days, it really, really sort of really didn't sort of enter my, my, my sort of thought process of thinking, well, I'll, I'll ever become one of them because they you know, the whole sort of military was full of the horror stories of the selection process and right. you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, I was aware of them. 
I didn't okay. speak to him. I would just see him now and again during these these tours. Got it. Um, and that's yours, the Royal Green Jackets? Is that who you're with at that time? Green Jackets, yeah, 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 which was a, a, a light infantry regiment. Got it. And, and for people that are uh, listening, this is 77, 78. So this is, yeah, 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 this yeah. is like the, the trouble. First like this is serious. Christmas. Yeah, yeah Christmas this is literally day after my 18th birthday. Wow. Um, That's incredible. You go up there. And this is not, I mean, this is not just going up to stand a post somewhere. I mean, you guys are. In no, the, no, in no, the no, 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 no. Basically, we were, there was, there was, there was um, we, we were working, uh, we'd live in what was called submarines, which were these concrete bunkers, uh, big, long bunkers because of obviously taking mortar fire all the time. Um, so we'd live in submarines on these sort of four layers of bunk beds, you know, either side, uh, everything had to be in, in the bunk bed. And, and literally you'd be doing, uh, you'd be doing uh, uh, urban patrols um, and during the daytime, urban patrols trying to dominate the area around the border in an area called South Armagh um, and then lay ambushes at night or you would be on the town patrol in the, in the base, which is called Cross McGlen, where the, 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 the town where we were based. And we would have to do our, our local protection patrols because obviously the vans would be coming in, the trucks would be coming in with the mortar base plates on. So we had to try and push out that 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 perimeter. So we, you know, the the you know the firing the mortars, which were homemade mortars, so they hopefully made out of sort of gas uh, cylinders. Uh, but, you know, the further we can push them out, the the less accurate they would be. So, um, you know, yeah, so we're taking casualties. Our commanding officer got shot down in his helicopter. There was no vehicles that went outside the town during, uh, uh, during that period of the, of the war, sort of, you know, up, up to then until maybe 10 years later, because um, they were always getting IED'd. So, um, I was going to ask yeah, about that. Was gonna, that was your first experience with IEDs. Yeah, yeah, I it was, was a 16-year-old, 18-year-old, Man, was that? Uh, did you get training as far as that that went, or did you just get thrown right into the mix yeah, and have get, to figure yeah, it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, basically, what 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 happened? The the two years before that, there were so many. Um, up until then, you know, seventeen year olds. If you was in an infantry battalion, you were going over to Northern Ireland. So, but there was there was a disproportionate amount of seventeen year olds that were getting killed. So that's when they changed it. Obviously, to you have to be eighteen. Um, and then implemented um, uh, Northern Ireland training. So you'd go away and you, you, it, it took about sort of, uh, it was a three-month module of doing uh, all the different requirements that are needed to go wherever you were in Northern Ireland. So if you went to Belfast, obviously it'd be all urban. If you go to South Armagh, it'd be a mixture of urban and rural. So, uh, and there was that of, more or less a duty of care stuff, basically, to get, if you like, the training package. So. If you was doing a five-month tour every year or four-month tour every year, we literally come back, have leave, go and do some of the normal exercises that you do, you know, infantry, you know, defense exercises, digging trenches, all that sort of stuff. And then we get ready for the next package. So you do the next package and then go and do another tour. Um, but you know, as a, as, you know what, as a, as a, you know, as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, I thought it was all right because you you save so much money. Um, and you sort of get back to the garrison town where we lived and all the second-hand car dealers are ready, you know, oh, rubbing are, our hands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing then, here in the same, United States. Exactly. <laughs> Outside of every base that we got a deal yeah. for you. Yeah. You got a deal for you. You'd buy it, you'd <laughs> crash it, it's somewhere would steal it or whatever. But then you would then go on another tour and come back and exactly do exactly the same. You know? <laughs> it's like, it was crazy. It was crazy. You know, save all this money up and then go and give it to some other guy, you know, for, yeah. for a heap of a car. Yeah, no, exactly. And then, 
I, I think your first time, one of your, in one of these uh, deployments up there, um, one of your good friends um, got killed by an IED. Is that, is that right? Moving a, moving did, a flag? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was the very first, it was my very first tour in, in Crossman Glen. So I was 18. And um, what happened was, was that the um, uh, lots of different ways of putting IEDs out, you know, it was obviously the conventional IEDs, the, you know, the roadside bombs, all that sort of stuff. Um, but what happened in this particular circumstance, there was a lot of um, uh, 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 tricolors were, were uh, hung up around the, the outskirts of, of, of Cross McGlenn. So the policy at that time was to take them down. So what happened, there was a, um, within the, the wooden stake where the tricolor was hanging off a, off a telegraph pole, uh, there was a mercury switch in it. And it, there, was, there was probably about sort of a pound, pound and a half of, of high explosives. They, they used um, uh, uh, Eastern Bloc Semtex at that stage. So as the guy called uh, Nicky Smith, he was on top of uh, an armoured vehicle called a, uh, it's a Saracen, we used to call them cans, you know. So they had these two cans that would be in the, in the, uh, in, in the, uh, the town itself. So he got onto the can and checked it to, to pull it down. So obviously as he pulled it, the mercury switch uh, tilted. And the whole thing detonated, and it for me it was the first time um, that that it sort of hit home that actually it was real, rather than saving up the money to get the second hand car. Um, uh, it actually it was real, you know. So you know, the, we took it took about two days to find his foot, you know that you know that that sort of visceral stuff, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I thought, oh yeah, that all people do get killed. Um, and that was the, you know, the first casualty of that tour as well, as well. Um, and as we were taking, um, uh, the, you know, the, 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 what was left of him, we put him in a, we had these poncho stretchers with us and we're running through the town and everyone's out cheering. And I thought, well, you know, it, it, it you know, it's not all about the, you know, saving the money, you know, people do yeah. get killed. And do you remember at 18 years old, did you have any sense of, um, how you guys were getting intelligence or who was running sources or were you targeting people with target packages like we would do later on? Um, what was that yeah. kind of intelligence cycle? What did that look like as far as targeting leadership up there? And then your involvement in that at such a young age? Yeah, it was, it was, it was basically we were, you know, obviously at the bottom of the food chain as a young infantry soldier, but basically what we would have is there'd be two lots of information that was coming in. It was technical information mm -hmm. and they would go, well, you know, this is tech in, um, whether it's, you know, to do with conversations and telephone calls, all that sort of, all the stuff. And then uh, human in, which would be sources. Yeah. So they would say, right, tech ain't says this, human in says that. We had no idea where that human intelligence was coming from, but we knew that it was out there. We knew that there were, there, there, there were groups out there um, that were uh, trying to recruit sources within the terrorist um, cell network. So it worked very much. Um, well, like French resistance, Al-Qaeda in, in the cell system. So, you know, if you've got four or six guys working, they, they, you know, not everybody knows where the weapons are. Not everybody knows what exactly the job is. So if you pick one of those guys out of the, the cell system, he's only got a, a certain amount of information that, that he knows. Mm -hmm. And certainly these, these organizations are very good at that. And once I got in the regiment and started doing undercover work in Ireland, um, you know, that, you know, I found myself, that was our, Pro, sort of most important thing was trying to get those sources to drag them out of those ASUs and, and coerce them to be, become a source. It's incredible. And then it's, at what point do you, uh, do you learn more about the SAS and, and selection process and then walk into that office and get a date to go and, and try out? How did yeah. that, how did that work? Yeah. 
it, well, it, it really started like everybody else. So, you know, the, 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 there was a big snooker final. You know, at that stage, the UK was mad about snooker and there was a big <laughs> snooker final going on. And all of a sudden it cut and then you've got all these guys running around, um, you know, the, the Iranian embassy. And, uh, and, and obviously boom, the regiment came on to the, if you like, the big screen. And there was a guy who was running along um, and he was checking under the cars. He was in civilian clothes. And uh, he was from our battalion and uh, it was called Ned. We used to call him Ned Belly because <laughs> he, he used to have one. He didn't have one now. <laughs> but we go, oh, well, that's Ned. You know, so clearly we knew that he'd done selection and gone in there. It was a regiment. So uh, like everybody else, the interest then started to, to form about uh, the regiment. And, and obviously the people from my battalion that are tri-selection have come back with the horror stories and, you know, people that they've got, got in. And it was really when I became a, an infantry platoon sergeant in the, in, the, in the battalion that I really thought about it. Uh, and it's just like, you know, it's like any other sort of profession, really. You look at it and go, okay, right, well, I'm here. But, you know, what's, what's the best place to be? Whether I don't know. You could be a soldier, a carpenter. It, it doesn't matter. Where's the best place to be? Yeah. And for me, I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try for the selection. Um, and, then, you know, there's lots of sort of urban myths how it all works. Uh, you know, you're specially selected. No, you're not. You go <laughs> to your unit's administration office and you fill in a form and send it off. And they come <laughs> back and go, yeah, okay, you can come to this selection. And that is as simple as that because it's all about self-motivation. So it's it's not as if you're selected. You know, they say, okay, you turn up. Um, and, and it's simple as that, really. Uh, and I thought, right, well, I, I better start preparing and and and, you know, you know, getting the fitness training in, getting all the, you know, what I hope was the, the mental preparation to, mm -hmm. to pass the selection. And then you did that the, you know, the first time. And uh, what happened that first time? You made it up yeah. almost to the end, right? The first time? Yeah, yeah. I, well, it, the, the selection process is, is the first month. And then there's, there's the, the, the rest of it goes on for about another six months. But the, the first month is purely physical um uh stamina really mm -hmm. um and it's it's uh a bergen you know a backpack right. and it and it's it's what we call tabs tactical advanced to battle so it's over over a mountain range in in the west of the uh the uk in in, in wales and basically you're every day you'll do a tab of between 15 and the longest one is 64 kilometers wow. um with set weights between 35 pounds and uh 50 pounds and you don't know how long the route is. You don't know what route it is. You get to a checkpoint. They go, where are you? You show them on the map. They say, all right, go to this eight-figure grid reference. You show them where it is on the map. And they say, well, get going. And, and off you go. So you don't know the cutoff time. So it's all about stamina and, and right. self-motivation. So I got to the second to last day. And actually, I was just too confident. I was too cocky. Um, there was a, there was a, a, a one route uh, uh, called sketch map where you're not using a map and a compass. You're just using what you've, you know, sort of can remember and, and using your compass. And I knew the ground very well because of the training. So I took a shortcut through a forestry block um, uh, that I thought was a fire break, but it wasn't. What they basically have done, they've been cutting all the trees and they've been felled. So the shortcut become a, a long cut and I was late <laughs> on the timings. So um, you only get two goes on selection because you might be, you know, if you keep on reapplying, you might be taking a place of a candidate that does get through. Right. So, um, and you, you get, you can get invited back. So um, second to last day, I was off that first month 
And they said, do you want to come back? And I went, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I got an opportunity to get on to the next selection, which was sort of six months' time. Um, and through, and obviously that one uh, finally made it through the seven months. Um, normally numbers-wise, it's, it's, there's no more than the 200, 220 at a push on each selection. And it's between eight and 12 past the... Wow. The, the 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 selection. And in fact, in our, our our selection, there was eight that passed. Um, the vast majority of people go in that first month. Yeah. You know, the guys. Yeah. I don't know. I think you're going to be James Bond or whatever it is. You know, they, they get <laughs> a lot of those guys. They go in the first month. You get injuries, and then people like me have copped it up. They're too cocky. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and it's sort of on my selection out of that two twenty. There was after that first month, there was twenty four, and then that gradually went down to the to the final eight. After the seven months, got it. And is, is part of that seven months going to uh, you go to, to Brunei or what you do the jungle side of things? Yeah, and- yeah, you do a jungle phase um, where you spend uh, a month under the canopy, and basically you're learning how to work in a small four man team um, uh, in the way that special forces operate. So and it's it's not so much as as well as the if you like the stamina and the the training itself because everything's live ammunition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they, there are casualties during this phase of training, um, uh, as there are actually in the first month as well. Uh, it was only sort of four or five years ago that two guys died um, on, that fir- on that first month. Um, but what it's all about is seeing if you can work in a small group, in a closed environment, with no leadership. You know, it's, there's some fantastic soldiers out there but they've got to be told what to do. If you say to a guy, right, go from here to here and don't stop, they'll do it. Um, but maybe they won't be using their own initiative to do it. So it's trying to see if, if a small group can actually motivate each other, help each other in a quite harsh environment. I'd never been to the jungle before. It, so uh, I had to sort of live like that because you live tactically for a month. Yeah. And the annoying thing is you, the, 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 the training team never tell you how good or bad you're doing. Right. And in fact, you don't know if you pass or fail until you get back to the UK. So it's all about best efforts, which it is, you know, which is horrible because you don't know, right. you know, I thought I failed, you know, it is, well, everybody thought I failed really, but it's not <laughs> until you, you, know, you get back. And the criteria is with the training team is, okay, would you have this, this man in your patrol? Mm-hmm. Cause the reality is they come from the squadrons. Right. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's not sort of too much of a leap to think that if you let somebody through the selection process, one day they might be in that guy's patrol. Oh, yeah. So it's not a pure democracy, but it's a democracy in, in the way that the training team go, if the majority say yes, they move through onto the next phase. Um, because the reality is you might be, you, you know, you might be in their squadron, you might be in their patrol. Right. And not knowing if you made it or not, that's such a, a psychological, yeah, it's, yeah, it's so it's psychologically really crushing as you go through it adds an entirely Absolutely. different element. I mean, in, in SEAL training, it's obvious, you know, you ring the bell and you're out, you know, it's, it's pretty cut and clear. So there's not that, that psychological element of the unknown, uh, like, like you guys have, um, which is pretty, is pretty, so, pretty amazing. So annoying. And the thing <laughs> is, it's certainly when, if you do it on the jungle phase, it's not as if you're going anywhere. Right. It's even if you, there's a thing, VW, voluntary withdrawal. But it's not as if you go out in the jungle. You just sit there and wait for <laughs> yeah, it. You're, you're there anyway. So it's, yeah, so you might as well get on. Yeah. Yeah. 
that is, is it after that that you do like a week or two of uh, survival, evasion, resistance, escape, or the yeah, yeah. Is, is that yeah. right after that, or how does that how does that work? No, there's, there's, you come back from that, and then you'll you'll do some modules. Um, you'll do um, uh, uh, like a, uh, a CQB close quarter battle module with pistols because the primary weapon of the regiment is the pistol. It's not you know the longs or you know all the heavy weapons because of certainly of the, of the covert nature of work that they do as well. So you do um, uh, uh, modules on, on, on pistol work um, in civilian clothes, which is all very exciting because, you know, it's the first time, you know, sort of military guys get, get to do that. Um, you do demolitions, uh, uh, medic training, because once you get into the, the squadron, um, you're on a year's probation, but you're straight, if, if the squadron operational, you're operational. So you've got to have that baseline of, you know, demolitions, signals, um, and and medical uh, mm-hmm. training. So you do those uh, modules. And in fact, uh, even during the weapon training modules, um, uh, some people have, have, have been, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, taken off selection. Right. We had, a, we had a, a Royal Marine corporal who was, you would expect would be really, really good at weapons, which he was, you know, normal platoon weapons. He was great. But actually, as soon as he got onto other weapon systems, he was just taking too long to adapt. And, you know, and, and so, the, you know, training team said, well, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you've got to be able to adapt quicker than you are. So yeah. it, it came off, you know, um, whereas some trade guy, some, you know, mechanic, in, in fact, who, who's been looking after tanks in Germany for like three years, could actually, you know, just switch on and adapt and, and move on. So he, he stayed on the, the selection. So you do a lot of those modules. Um, and then the very last a uh, big hurdle is the combat survival okay. uh, stage. And, and that's in two parts. That's what happens is, is that you do all the traditional stuff, you know, where you're going out in the, in the, uh, in, in the field and you're learning how to survive all, all that, that sort of stuff, traps and shelters and all that, that, that sort of thing. And the other bit is the uh, conduct under capture module yeah. where yeah. you sit uh, for about, uh, it's, it's about a week. And everybody, uh, a selection of people who've, who've been held against their will, whether they're prisoners of war, political prisoners, uh, kidnapped victims, you know, for money, anybody who's been held, you know, journalists would come in who've been held, you know, where they've been reporting. And what they would talk about is their experiences. And you would, you know, then you'd have a Q&A afterwards. And the, and the, and the idea was that if you listen to all these different people's experiences, if there's something just a sentence that helps you if you're caught. Because obviously, you know, special forces, they're prone to capture troops, same as air crew, you know. So they, if, if there's something, just one thing that's going to help you when you're captured, it's worth sitting there for a, you know, for a week, listening to all these different people's experiences. Um, and, and, and obviously for me, during the Brother Two Zero experience, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it worked very well, worked very well indeed. Andrew, I was going to get ask you if you thought back to that, uh, that time during Bravo Two Zero, but I'll get to that in a in a second, but, uh, do you remember, uh, I think they had somebody, a wo- like a woman from the special operations executive that jumped into to France during world war II that came and talked to you guys and, uh, and yeah. made an impression on you that, uh, some of them, and was captured, Absolutely. I don't know, right away, maybe, but, um, this, yeah. went through she was a young, torture. Yeah, she was, well, she was, a, she was a young French woman living in London when war broke out and she was a dressmaker and SOE got hold of her. And they um, said, right, you're going to go back to France. And basically, um, we just want you to blow up stuff. And she's gone, yeah, okay. She's 19. Wow. So she gets her training. 
She parachutes. They actually they they jumped her into Holland, and the idea was then she was going to get moved back in 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 France. And um, she started operating and was caught and had it was something about two years of interrogation. She's you know she never broke out of her cover story. Um, you know, constantly um, you know obviously denying what she what she what she was doing. Um, and then eventually landed up in uh, a concentration camp and, you know, and then was, was liberated. And the thing that, that kept her going was the fact that her family was still in France. So if she gave up a real identity, would her then family be, you know, be um, uh, rounded up as well? So, and, and the amazing thing, what she said, she said, look, you can't, do anything physically about what they want to do for you. Like you can't, there's not a thing you, you can do because they control you. So you just got to accept that and get on with keeping this sort of an integrity of her mind, of your mind. And that's, that's all you can do. And that certainly sort of stuck with me from the, from this woman who now was, you know, she was in her late eighties by then. Um, uh, you know, and this was from a, you know, by then, what, 20-year-old uh, young French dressmaker. Um, and and then um, I heard exactly the same thing from an American phantom uh, pilot. It was a, it was a, um, a Navy pilot. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, you know, he had no hair, no teeth, you know, no muscle mass, but he was still, he was still alive, this guy. And, Literally, it flown 77 missions off of the aircraft carrier he was based on. Does 80 missions, and that's the end of his tour. 77th mission, he got shots down. Spent five years in solitary confinement um, in, in Vietnam. Um, every major bone in his body had been broken. He had to self-heal. He had no muscle mass on his buttocks because it was just continuously sort of beaten out of him by a, um, a frayed bamboo. Um, and he said exactly the same. He said, look, there's nothing I could do. He says, look, I was a Marine. I was, you know, when they first sort of, you know, started to, to, to sort of get hold of me and, and, and in effect beat me up, um, I would fight back. And said, I certainly learned, uh, you know, I really, really quickly learned that if there's two of them and you do that, well, they'll bring four guys in next time. So just accept it. And this guy accepted what happened to him physically just try to minimize the, the the damage, but he kept the integrity of his, of, of, his, of his brain. And for him, his motivation was wanting to get back to see his child. Um, and he built a house mentally. He built this house and he had so much time. He redecorated it and he rewired it and he'd done all the, you know, and he said, I didn't have a, a clue about house building, but it didn't matter. I just, <laughs> you know, done this, 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 this process. His motivation was getting back to, to, to you know, to see his family. Um, and it works, you know, it, it, well, then he was, he was living in Hawaii and, you know, there was like loads of, um, uh, crystals hanging from his ceiling, you know, he it, it found Buddha and, you know, all that sort of uh, stuff. So what, you know, he was alive. So what? Wow. And did you think back on that training years later, uh, when you were captured in Iraq, did you think yeah. back to those people talking and when, what they went through and, and how did that, uh, how did that training and what the, those stories impact you then? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And it was that, that point. You know, coming from the the the, the SOE woman and from the uh, from the Phantom pilot, is that you j- just accept it. It's you know within life, um, you know everybody else is to blame. If something misfortune happens to you, there's the, you know we live in a culture where somebody else is 
is to blame and it's, you know, it's, it's not your fault and it's a system or an individual's fault. But the fact is, it doesn't change anything. If you're captured, you're in Baghdad, you're in an interrogation centre, well, you can blame whoever you want. Nothing's going to nothing's change that. So that, that's why, you know, I, I, you know, I think that certainly the resistance to interrogation training um, was really, really helpful because it just fought of those two uh, people. You just got to accept it and, and really just keep that integrity of the brain. Obviously, the, the, you know, we, we, when people are captured, there's still a job to do. You've got to retain that information um, to give, obviously, the headquarter element time to, you know, readjust, say, well, you know, we haven't heard anything from Bravo 2.0. Uh, what does that mean? Well, the worst case scenario is everybody's captured and they're saying everything that they know. So how do we then minimize the the risk to the other guys on on the ground so your job is to give that window of opportunity and that really comes from you know the operational security at the beginning of it of, of, of any operation where you're only told what you need to know so if this situation does happen even if you do blur out everything you know you can minimize it so the headquarter element can look at it and go this is what they know because as we plan and prepare we go into isolation so nobody knows what we're doing we don't know what anybody else is doing. This is what they know. What can we change and, and adapt? So there's still a job to do, which is a big motivation. Um, because obviously the you know the, the regiment's quite a small organization. And and so I, you know, I had friends in in other in, in other squadrons that were out in the Western Desert, still out there looking for scuds. And yeah, I'm the godfather of their kids, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's that all that stuff happens. So there's a motivation, you know, not to not to um, uh, uh, you know to blow out what you know and to understand you've still got a job to do. Incredible. And so before before 1990, 1991, uh, you get to your squadron and you go right to a uh, to a, an air troop, air squadron. Is that how you how you yeah, do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's four squadrons, and then in each squadron there's four troops. So there's an air assault troop, there's a boat troop, mounting troop, mobility troop. Uh, basically, entry skills, you know, how you can get pe- pe- people into the, you know, the theatre of operations. So um, I come from a, you know, a regular sort of light infantry regiment. So I wasn't parachute trained. So I had to go away and do the basic static line jump uh, right. course and then got on to the, you know, the, um, uh, the, the military freefall, you know, the halo and, and, and uh, 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 military insertion you know jumping at 20 well anything now are going up now it's 24,000 up to 32,000 feet now um and you jump out with the loads and all all that sort of stuff so which I found quite exciting actually I thought that was a really exciting thing to uh, uh, to do and, and still do it now as a sport oh, um nice. yeah yeah it's great it's you know I really enjoy it but um so that was very exciting joining the uh, the the Sabre squadron into a you know a, an air assault troop um and then really, uh, you know, I got badged on a Tuesday where, you know, you become a member of the, of the squadron. And uh, the squadron were already out on operations in Southeast Asia. So I, I went out on the Thursday um, back into the jungle for about another six weeks. Um, but without realising it, it was, a, it was a really good opportunity because, because of the, the, the squadron was operating as a whole, which was quite unusual. So I got to know people, you know, before sort of, Coming back to Hereford, which is the base of the Special Air Service in the in the west of the the, the country, and um, 
because uh, sometimes you might join a squadron and you might not see people for years because they're away on a job, they come back, you're out on one. And right. so you sort of, you know, you miss people all the time. So for me, it was really good. Um, and then if, if finished that, that, uh, uh, that, that uh, job, you know, which was in Southeast Asia and literally then came back and then started to get ready for what was called a troop tour of uh, Northern Ireland. So we were the, uh, the, the air assault troop was going to be the special air service contingent of the the, the conflict there, um, which, which again, I found it really exciting. So all of a sudden I've become one of those guys I saw when I was 18, you know, we had the, yeah. the long hair and, you know, the fast nice. cars and all, all the, you know, all that stuff going on. Um, uh, and it, yeah, that, that, it was a, um, you know, we took casualties. We had, we had people killed, you know, they were, you know, obviously the terrorist organizations were taking casualties. Um, uh, but the whole sort of gamut of that of, of of that tour certainly for me was so interesting because you could see now how where all that human information was coming mm. from and and how all that that if you like the the darker side of the of, of the war was was being fought, um, which was really interesting. Um, right. And is that fourteen it, intelligence company or is that something? No, that, that was later? no because of that tour. What happened was two of us was approached by uh, 14 Intelligence Company, 14 Inc., which is an undercover information um, uh, organization in Northern Ireland. So basically, um, uh, people like me and this, this, this other guy, because we've been brought up in this housing estate, you know, social housing, and we, we sort of feel at home in, you know, the, the, the sort of the same sort of housing estates in Northern Ireland, you know, just the same designs and same people living there, that sort of thing. So because we feel comfortable in those environments we were approached by 14 in um and asked if we want to go to 14 in but actually they're telling you there's no choice in the okay. matter you're going whether you like it or not um which i didn't want to do in the beginning i thought well you know i mean the regiment if i wanted to go to 14 in i would have right. tried for 14 in but um actually the, the commanding officer uh, during that time um we all thought he was wrong but he was absolutely right he said look that skill that urban uh, undercover work we're starting to lose that skill because it's we're, you know we're going off in, in in other realms so we need to retake that skill back so we need people going into 14 in so at the time um you know we, we were being press gang but he was absolutely right it was absolutely right so i've done two years in Derry, which is the second city in northern ireland up in in the northwest and again that was all sort of you know long ear. i had this Big permed hair. It looked like Michael Jackson, like <laughs> 1986 sort of haircut. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, just running around, basically trying to identify active service units of provisional IRA, Irish Liberation Army, those sort of organizations that worked in the self system um, and trying to stop their, their mounting their operations. So trying to identify somebody that was weak. Once we again because of the you know the cell system, we just know one or two, and it's trying to sort of latch onto them to find out who else is in the cell. Then trying to find someone who was weak in that cell, um, and it could be you know an addiction, um, you know it could be drugs, alcohol, um, even homosexuality. You know it's a very conservative sort of part of the UK. Um, uh, anything, even say their mother had, had uh, you know cancer, anything that we could deem as a weakness that we could then drag them in to become a source, whether they liked it or not. You know, we could get the, maybe the mother up onto the front of the list for, for cancer right. care, that sort of thing. Um, and once we would identify that we would 
lift, well, kidnap them, you know, basically nine out of ten times, just headbutt them, put them in the boot of a car, drive them out to the countryside and uh, explain the facts of life. And then uh, <laughs> we would have members of, the, of like, the, you know, the special branch would be there who would be doing all the, the handling um, and then trying to, to get them to become a source. And then trying to find their bomb factories, where the weapons are, just to try and stop, you know, the, 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 the attacks. And, uh, and living in, in, in Derry and doing that work, um, I could absolutely see why, you know, kids were joining the provisional IRA, you know, because if I started to hate the army, you know, getting rounded, you know, they used to do these big catchment roundups and, you know, all these sort of dawn house searches, all that sort of stuff. Totally understand it. So I used to hate the army as well by about the end of the first year. Uh, uh, you know, but the fact is, is that I come from a housing estate in London, so I've landed up in the army. They're in a housing estate in Northern Ireland. They're, they're in a provisional IRA. It's, you know, it's as simple as that. That's why we call them players. We don't call them the enemy. We call them players because it's only, a, you know, your, your, it's only your, your personal circumstances that put you where you are. Oh, interesting. Uh, and you did that for two years, going to two and from years, Northern yeah. Ireland? Yeah, yeah. So you left for two years. Um, no longer than that, because otherwise there's a, there's a tendency it, after a while, then, you know, you cover and get blown. Um, so I've done a two-year tour there. Um, and I come back. And then I've got involved in what we call team jobs, you know, these smaller operations. Um, that, uh, uh, one or two things, well, one or three things, really. You, you, you go and fight a conflict for, a, for a, you know, the, the sponsored country. You go and train the indigenous forces in that country, or you train them and lead them. So the stuff we were doing, particularly in, in West Africa, was uh, uh, fighting the conflicts. Obviously, a lot of the post-colonial states had defence agreements with their respective countries, and so all that you know, all that sort of stuff was going on, um, which was good. Um, I learned Swahili before I oh, went. Oh, nice! To, and you went to, you yeah, went to Botswana yeah. as part of that, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. I learned Swahili, uh, uh, which I thought was you know good, yeah. interesting. But That's when I got awesome. there, everybody spoke English or Portuguese. And everybody supported a, a UK football team called Manchester United. So that, that was just any doubt, just go Manchester United. And they go, yeah. You know. so the, the Swahili was never used. It was mad. But um, so a lot of time in, in, in Africa, which was, which was, again, that was a, a mixture really of like grey ops where you'd be sometimes in civilian clothes, sometimes with, you know, all the party gear on. Um, uh, uh, and it was just a mixture really. And, um, you know, sometimes you'd, you were working for people that want to become the government or sometimes you, you know, you work with, with people who want to stay as the government. And again, it's like democracy. So whatever the government, our government are saying, yeah. then, you know, you're going to do that job. Um, so we've done that, you know, obviously quite a lot in the Middle East, you know, historically we've always been sort of quite a big presence in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and got involved in what was called first strike in Colombia, where, um, which was a CIA-backed operation where it was the the advent of crack cocaine. Obviously, it was a huge epidemic that was sweeping the United States uh, once crack cocaine in. The Brits were getting really concerned because it was starting to work here, and there was a there was a fear that it would crumble societies. You know, this, this the crack cocaine, and so we got in, involved um, on first strike, which was one of those jobs where we'd go in and train the anti-narcotics place, and then we would lead them. So we'd be, you know, patrol commanders and have the, the command set up uh, to go and find the, the drug manufacturing plants, DMPs, and all that, that sort of stuff, which was a, a, a great job, really amazing job, you know. Um, 
Uh, two month nine uh, nine month tours down there. Wow. And and obviously he was getting extra. What was it local? I've forgotten what they call it. Local overseas allowance used to get paid okay. by the CIA. And it used to get your little envelope every month, which was great. You know, it was probably old <laughs> drugs money. Who knew? You know? Yeah, probably. Yeah, it was great. Um, so a lot of those sort of team jobs, you know, um, uh, and going then through the rank system. Because when you join the regiment, you lose all your rank and you start again as a, oh, as a okay. troop, you know, private soldier. So I was a sergeant in the infantry, but become a troop and you start again. Um. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of experience. I mean, that's that's a lot of diverse experience all around the world. I mean, you were probably one of the uh, it, most well-trained, most experienced operators for that time uh, when 1990 hits. And yeah, uh, when August yeah, it, it's interesting. The US ends it, up, you know, Kuwait and all, all that sort of thing. Kuwait but, and all that. It, it is interesting. I think that because of the Brits, basically, they they want you to do a bit of everything. And there's this this thing called a complete soldier. So hence one of the reasons why they wanted people to go back to 14 in to get that urban undercover experience mm-hmm. as well. So there's this thing called a complete soldier. And the idea is, is that you, you're, you're getting bits of everything, you know, so um, uh, the, and sometimes it just become a total pain because you come off one job and then three weeks later you're on another, you know, and, you, and you're away again. Um, but it, it, in the long term, the system did work where you get lots of different sort of operations in different environments and it, it does all gel together because you just get that experience and then obviously experience of others that, that are, you know, have been on other jobs and on the ground as well. We have a big thing called a cross brief every year, which is in December. And what happens is then the, 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 whoever's there within the regiment, they all get together and everybody comes up and they do presentations on the jobs that have been happening what they've learned, you know, what was good, what was bad, what was indifferent, what we need to change. And, uh, and then everybody's allowed to put their input in um, just to improve sort of, you know, yeah. the, the effectiveness, oh, you know, yeah. this whole thing of this pursuit of excellence. Oh, yeah. And, no, it's uh, fantastic. It was good. Yeah, it was, it was you know, it takes place over a week and everybody, you know, gets in there. So everybody from like the commanding officer to the newest trooper is allowed to have an input. And you're allowed to speak your mind. Sometimes it goes a bit overboard because obviously <laughs> there's a lot of people with a lot of things to say. Sure. But actually, it, it, you know, it's a free forum, you know, and everybody can have a chest poke at everyone. Um, and the reason why is because we need to improve on what's already been done. No, that's amazing. You're making the organization stronger as a whole. Yeah, and I always, exactly. from reading, you know, your book and growing up as a little kid, anything on the SAS, I would, I would snatch it up and read. And I, w- I would, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, we had, we had Vietnam and then we yeah. had flashpoints here and there with, uh, Grenada, with Panama, uh, you know, t- a little bit in desert one for us, Mogadishu, of course. Um, yeah. those are, are flashpoints here and there where if you were in the right place at the right time, you know, you went and did that, but it wasn't some like sustained combat operation or, or it wasn't no, sustained I- operations. Like you guys seem to do really from the end of world war two up through today, all around the world, staying sharp by being. Do in you know, there's one year since the end of the Second World War. There's only been one year where there there haven't been operations, and that was 1968. Wow! And that's it. Every single year, there's there's been you know, uh, you know an operation going on, um, you know, involving you know, the, if you like, the Green Army, the regular armies, but as well as well as special forces. Um, and, and I think that's a lot to do with our old colonial past. And again, the agreements that we've got right. and all that sort of st- stuff going on. So yeah. there is a, a it, yeah, there's quite a lot of experience, actually. It's quite, you know, good to, to draw on it, you know, yeah. and certainly 
what we, you know, the, the old guys, the old and bold, you'd be talking to them certainly about the Middle East. You know, there was a there was a war that was fought by the regiment in Oman. Oh yeah. In the 70s, oh. uh, Operation Storm. And it was against in, uh, communist insurgents coming up from Yemen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so obviously all the Middle Eastern stuff, you talk to some of these guys and, you know, the, the, you know the, there's, there was quite a famous battle in Murbat where, you know, six guys and they had a 25-pounder gun and a mortar and the, and the insurgents were so close they had to physically hold the mortar vertical to get, to get a decent range because literally they were trying to drop them, at, you know, 100 metres away with this 25-pounder and a mortar round. Um, and in, in shorts and flip-flops, <laughs> you know, yeah. no body armor, they're just holding this thing. Um, and it, the, all that sort of stuff that was going on in, in, the, in the, well, up until 74, I think, you know, the, the, the Oman War. So there was a lot of experience there. Oh yeah. No, one of my favorite photos is, uh, of an SAS guy sitting up on this kind of, you, you'll, you'll know the one, if I had it right here, I'd show you, you'd, you'd know the photo and he's sitting there. He's got, I think a bolt action rifle against his shoulder. And, uh, you know, it's just a beautiful photo and it speaks not just to that conflict, but to, as a whole, everything that, that you guys had done since the end of World War II to stay sharp and not just rely on the lessons of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 yeah, yeah, no, years exactly. ago, uh, like we did with, with Vietnam. And uh, so I always admired that about the, the SAS and uh, UK in general, uh, keeping forces out there, not in full-blown conflicts, but yeah. just keeping some forward forces out there to stay sharp so that it's not a surprise when you drop a bunch of new guys in uh, and all of a sudden they're in combat for the first time and they're 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, whatever it is. Exactly. Uh, but you've, you've kept that tradition going to stay sharp. So I always ad- admired that about you guys and still do, still do today. So, so when 1990 hits, uh, do you remember where you are when, uh, when you see a, you know, CNN or BBC or a newspaper yeah. that says, Hey, the U S is, uh, is in the middle East. And did you, uh, did you think, Hey, we're going to be going in there at some point here? Yeah. It, it basically I was, I was on the, um, it was, I was doing a, uh, 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 a six-month tour on the counterterrorism team at that at, at that time, which is obviously a national and international uh, uh, commitment. So when all that that started, in my mind, I thought, well, you know, our our, our squadron wouldn't be committed to that to that war because of this commitment that we mm-hmm. we have. There's always has to be a, a saber squadron on on the counterterrorism team. So, uh, but interestingly, the the command element of the regiment changed over the the counterterrorism uh, team early. Because we all thought we were going to be there for like two or three years, you know, before it was going to be a, a long conflict. So all of a sudden, from the point of thinking, well, I'm not going to get involved, uh, uh, we literally handed over. And then two days later, we we're off to the Saudi. And uh, we, were, we were, you know, planning and doing preparation for all that traditional stuff that special forces get involved with, you know, disruption of communications, um, uh, supply lines, um, the the uh, we, we call it prime target assassination, but basically it was just getting out there laying IEDs for the command structure of the the the, uh, the the Iraqi military. So we were doing our target packs for all that, but then the scud started firing from the western deserts in Iraq into Israel, and um, for us the whole regiment, all of those tasking stopped. Um, and in fact, the the job that we had as as an air assault um, uh, troop was. Two hours before the air campaign was going to start, we were going to static line jump uh, into the southeast um, uh, edge of Baghdad, and we we wanted to. Uh, we were tasked with trying to hit these two electricity uh, turbines, 
that were not for defensive. I think it was just the way they designed. They were they were underground, and so the air planners thought they wouldn't be able to take them out. So obviously that first wave is all about the utilities, water, electricity, get get all that that destroyed. So our job was then we were going to go in. We were going to jump because of the air threat. We were going to jump at 400 feet as opposed to a tactical jump at 800 feet, uh, normal sort of static line, and basically go in, lay the ordnance, and then just run west and get picked up whenever you know we, we, they, they'll come pick us up uh, whenever. And then the you know the, as the air war started. Um, so the problem with jumping at 400 feet is that if you have a, a problem, you know, your lines are twisted or malfunctioned, there's no time for reserves. So I said as a joke, oh, we won't be taking reserves then. And they went, no, that's right. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so thankfully that job was cancelled. And yeah. then we all, it was all about the scuds. Oh, <laughs> it was like, so, yeah, well, you land. He says, look, you know, obviously there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a bit of drama on the, on the landing. Um, but you've got to get in, sort that out, and then just go south and, and you know, we get people in to pick you up at some stage. But all that changed. You know, there was two squadrons were then tasked to go out into the Western Desert. It's before the ground war, uh, the air campaign started, and um, try and find these scuds. There was a deal that was struck by uh, Bush Sr. and the Israelis of a 14 of a, of a day window. If the scuds continue to fire after 14 days, Israel would join in the, the conflict, which obviously that's what the Iraqis wanted mm-hmm. because then the alliance we had with the Arab states would crumble because right. technically they were going to fight alongside Israel. Mm-hmm. So everybody's tasking, changed, went out. And so um, uh, I was given a, a job to take a, a, an eight-man patrol to the northwest of Baghdad to try and find a fiber optic cable that ran between Baghdad and through uh, fiber optic cables and and microwave to the scud teams in the western desert. So you know these things take a couple of hours to rig up. You know coordinates when and when to fire. The idea was to cut that line of communication. Uh, the scud teams then won't have that information where and when to fire. Whilst the other two squadrons are out there, they were in half squadron groups trying to find these things. Okay. Um, and when they fire, you know when they found them, they would either bring fast check in, you know laser them up bring fast jet in mm-hmm. or destroy them yourself, you know, their anti-tank uh, devices, that sort of stuff. Uh, and the fixed launcher sites that were like concrete sort of uh, devices in the desert that, that they could drive in and just sort themselves out as quicker, then find them and, and start destroying the, those things as well. Um, so that was the plan. Um, and for, for the people uh, that are listening, the younger people, the laser designators back then were not something that fits on the end of your rifle. Uh, no. like today, like these things <laughs> no. were gigantic. Uh, those like laser a suitcase, yeah. Those things were huge back then. It was like a suitcase, uh-huh. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, crazy. Tripod, we're doing those. trying to sort of level them up. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah, so that's yeah. no joke right there. And then when you guys, what was your plan when you found those fiber optic cables? What, how were you supposed to to cut them? How how big yeah, were they? Well, or they like what? How what was that? What was the plan there? Well, it, it, interesting. We weren't too sure how to destroy them. Because um, it was such a rush to get out there, you know, we, we were trying to find out, you know, the best way to destroy them. Uh, we didn't know whether, you know, we had to blow them up or I don't know, like headbutt them or something. We didn't really know. So it's You'll figure really it out, yeah. yeah. So what we decided to do was once we found the once we found the cable, um, we had to deny the, the 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 cable. So we would put a series of timed explosions, just small explosions, on the cable itself. And lay and and lay ID. Mm-hmm. So the first one would go off, 
then the crews would come down because they're quite easy to repair. The Iraqi crews would come down to repair. So we'd have the IEDs quite close. Um, and we know, knew, use a thing called number 37 switch, which you push and it bounces up in the air and then explodes. Um, so we'd, we'd lay them really, really close. So when they come down, they would go off. It would kill or injure the guys who were coming down. The next ones, when the next uh, device blew, we would just spread them out a bit more. So as they're coming in, they'd be cautious, thinking that they'd be around the edge. So each cut, we'd just spread out the switches, um, uh, you know, make it spread more and more to try and obviously, because we've got to deny these people. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and obviously there's the moralation sort of, effect as well because if they're getting killed and and they're getting injured it's going to slow them down so that was the plan just to keep that thing cut as long as possible so we once we found it we would do a cut um well wherever we could get into it Mm because we didn't know how it was protected at that stage whether you know we had to get through manholes or you could dig it up we just didn't know Uh, but that was the plan uh that was the plan and before you went in did you uh how long were you planning on being on the ground or did you did you know what was the what was the yeah. uh, kind of right and left limits there on how, how it was 14 days, or, was exactly 14, 14 days 14. to do with this deal that had been done with, uh, uh, with, with the Israelis. Okay. So it was 14 days. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the command officer of the, the allied forces that type or the Norman Schwarzkopf. So he come down, he done his bit. He said, right on the ground, 14 days. So we, okay. okay. <laughs> and that's it. So, you, so you're you packed at this point. You're packing days. for 14 days. You're packing exactly, for yeah, 14 yeah. days. You're packing exactly. all of that. That's a, that's a heavy ruck. We had a lot, you know, so much stuff. So we took 14 days water. We took, um, obviously, the, the, you know, the, the 14 days food. We're on um, hard routine, so um, uh, which lessens the load uh, a bit because we, you know, uh, you know, there's no sleeping bags. You, you know, your, 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 your kit's always on you um there's no you know there's no flame so there's no cooking there's no smoking there's no you know none of that sort of stuff mm-hmm. we urinate in um uh, uh petrol cans which we put in our backpack because we leave nothing there and we defecate into uh, the ration pack mm-hmm. put them in the in the bergen as well because actually if you leave it there it will be discovered whether animals discover it humans will discover it because you might be sent back there as well you know if it all goes wrong you might be sent back so everything you bring in you bring out um, and basically, uh, 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 I just used to put a Gore-Tex jacket over everything at night, and that's and that's it, you know, because um, uh, it's hard routine. So, um, uh, so that lessens a bit of the load, but it, it's you know the communications equipment and the explosives that was the heavy stuff. Trying to get you know that amount of it because we wanted to get as many cuts as we could in, and okay. uh, and uh, fourteen days of water with the jerry cans. Um, so we just had to pack it and uh, and get on with it, basically. And again, it's that that whole thing of of nobody's forcing you to do this stuff. Right. Everybody volunteers for this, you know. Yeah. So if you don't like it, right. get out. That's it. <laughs> it's as easy as that. Time time to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, amazing. Exactly. Amazing. So, so you guys load the helos, and uh, is it UK pilots that take you in, or US pilots? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we had a, we had we we got our own uh, SF flight. Um, and uh, which was really strange because they've had all this brand new camouflage paint that had been put on, and we thought it was all infrared, special this and special that. And then we found out after the war, it was just the guys had loads of paint with nothing to do, so they just painted <laughs> some weird shapes all over it. Like, you know, oh it's like that was it. Um, yeah, so we got our own flight. So they, they you know, they obviously coming in really low. Um, the problem we had on going in, they, they, the, the Iraqis had the Roland. Um, 
uh, an aircraft system. Mm. So they would then illuminate the aircraft. Uh, and if you got the, obviously, the, uh, myself and the, and the two, I see we had the headphones on talking to the, the pilots as we were going in. They're all obviously on, on MVG coming in. And then all of a sudden you hear this loud wailing coming through the headphones where you've been illuminated by the Rolands, you know. And, uh, you know, and they're, you know, trying to do their evasion and all, all that sort of stuff once we're over the border. And uh, uh, I didn't like that at all because you've got no control. You know, right. you're on the ground. You've got a bit of control. You? Yeah. you know, you're sitting in the back of an aircraft. You've got nothing. Nothing. You know? Yeah. No, just no, hold on. You've got nothing. So just have to sit there and wait. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's brutal. I didn't like it's that horrible. stuff either, not having control. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then did you guys do a couple uh, false inserts on the way in or did you go right to a... Uh, no, so- it went straight in. Um, okay. Basically, because the, the, the window that we had, there were... Uh, uh, the ground war hadn't started... Uh, sorry, the air war hadn't, hadn't started by then. So the, 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 the other half squadron groups, they were penetrating. They were on vehicles going out to the Western deserts trying to find. So they were then crossing uh, the border and trying to get in as, as quickly as possible. It was literally just get in there, mm. just get in. And, and that was it. Uh, and the Rolands were interrogating, you know, and again, you know, it, it, we were hoping on the bases they didn't know what they were interrogating. because yeah. obviously it was a huge amount of Iraqi military activity out, out on the ground as well because people were being moved south, you know, units that were being moved south because it was very clear there was going to be a, you know, there was going to be a, 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 a ground invasion of, of, of Kuwait to retake it back. Yeah. So a lot of the movement, a lot of confusion, and it was all about trying to get in during all that. Jeez. And so you drop, and how far did you think you were going to have to move with those packs once you oh, got, we, we, dropped we, off? Yeah, we, we, it, was, it was mad. So because of the, the um, and again, we weren't exactly sure where it was. Yeah. So we, we, we landed and we, we landed about, you know, 17 kilometers short because what we wanted to do was move in to this MSR, this main supply route, which the intelligence says, well, look, you know, this is the, it's, it's not a, a, not a metal road. It's a, a track system that leads up uh, uh, northwest towards uh, Syria. And he said, well, you know, it, you know, what we reckon is that the, the fiber optic cable has got to be along that because of the normal maintenance and, and repair of, of this equipment. Um, and there were some microwave dishes that were further up on the MSR. So it made sort of sense that the line was coming, coming up that way. So um, we, want, we want to stop short because what we want to make sure is, number one, that we hit the MSR. Um, and number two, at that night as well, we want to get out and start looking for this, for this fiber optic because it may not be there. Yeah. It may be somewhere else. So if we had number one tactically because of the noise, so we had our own sort of, you know, again, our own control moving in, but also at the same time checking to make sure that we're not going to cross anything that even resembles something like a, you know, a fiber optic cable on the way into this main supply route. Because nobody knew where it was exactly. Right. It was all sort of get out there and find it. Simple Jeez. as that. Gosh. And then, so you land, you hit, you hit the ground and you start moving yeah. right away. Yeah. Yep, start moving right away because you know what we wanted to do is get there mm-hmm. up to that main uh, uh, main supply route a bit, you know, quite a lot actually before first light because obviously we've got to find our hide because you know our biggest weapon is not what we're carrying; it's it's concealment. So let's get there, let's find a, a light point, an LUP, let's sort ourselves out, then get out and start looking for this this fiber optic cable. In the daytime, we've got to get back in; we've got to hide up wait for a last light, and then start getting out again. So the, the emphasis was to get there. If we had time to get out and start looking for this, this um, uh, uh, fiber optic cable. So it was just a matter of, and again, going back to selection, just tabbing with loads of heavy weight to get there. 
yeah. to get there. So we got there, we found an LUP. Um, we found the MSR very, very easy because what we didn't know, and even Schwarzkopf said, he, you know, they didn't even know what was happening at that stage. There was a mecha- an Iraqi uh, mechanized brigade coming down from the border with uh, Iran. Mm-hmm. They'd been fighting a war for 10 years with them. So they had these mechanized brigades up there. And that was coming down south, um, going via Baghdad to, to, to Kuwait. So as we were moving up, we could, you know, could hear, and then you could start to see all this, this armor coming down the MSR. So we knew we found it. Okay. Um, found an LUP and then uh, sent out, you know, myself and, uh, it was an eight-man patrol, so myself and three others uh, went out for a clearing patrol. Um, and the other side of the MSR, we got across the M- M- MSR. There was some, there was some uh, habitation out there, which, you know, normal, what you'd expect, a compound type. Mm-hmm. habitation that's no threat for us they're over the other side uh a few hundred meters away there was two s60 and aircraft guns that were there and clearly they were there protecting the 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 mechanized brigades as, as they were coming through again they were no threat to us because they're not you know they're in their own country they're static it's not as if they're sending out clearing patrols so uh, for okay right we're all right so um got in back into the uh, the lup and then first light, just before first light, I went above the, the, the hide, had a look, make sure everything, you know, what we thought we'd see that, that, uh, that night was, it was right. And it was. So see the two S60s, still, you know, traffic, uh, not as much as during the night, because there's a lot more moving at night than there was at day. Um, but there was, you know, there, was, there was still armoured vehicles coming down. Um, all good. So it was about laying up and sending our first situation report, SITREP, yeah. And all it is, they want to know is where we are, um, uh, uh, what's happening, and what we're going to do about it. And that's it. It's just three things. So uh, we, we're using our antenna theory. You know, we're laying out antennas on the ground. because oh, so you're, you're doing an HF shot, high frequency yeah, yeah, shot. Yeah, you're yeah, not doing yeah, a we're satcom shot. The ionosphere, yeah. So we're encrypting uh, the, the, the sit rep, uh, hitting it for that like two-second burst, you know, to bounce off yeah. uh, to our, our, our receivers. And we weren't getting anything. We're getting corrupt signals. Um, so we're trying it again. Um, still corrupt signals. And it wasn't until we got back that we realized that, that we'd been given the footprints for the south of the country as opposed to the north of the country. Uh-huh. Um, for, you know, in way, the way, because the ionosphere changes and, mm. you know, you're trying to bounce that signal. So uh, we were hitting it, hitting it, hit. Anyway, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't working. Tried different antenna theory. Just, yeah. just, just doesn't work. Brutal. Um, but that was all right. We're still there. It's not as if, you know, everything's going to happen. So uh, we're waiting for last light to get out again try and find this cable feeling quite confident now because of this traffic uh was was moving about uh and then we were compromised we were, we were compromised by a uh, a young kid uh with his goats we could hear the goats and the you know the lead goat and eddie's little bell on we could hear this kid shouting in the distance but for us at the moment it didn't mean anything mm-hmm. um you know there's lots of noise going on and it literally it was when the goats started to come over we was in a in a, an impression in a, in a wadi mm-hmm. um because uh, it, it was undulating ground of no more than 17 meters over like 200 kilometers. You know, it wasn't, right. it wasn't exactly, you know, it was, it was undulating, but that was it. So we're in our hide, the, the, the goat come down, and then this kid started to shout at the goats and coming closer and closer. And then come over, saw us, clearly eight of us down in the, in the, uh, in, in the LUP. And quite rightly, he started running, um, at, unfortunately, in the direction of the, of the two S60 guns. Yeah. 
was one of the guys, Vince, who tried to get hold of him, tried to scramble up, uh, get hold of him. It was too late. This kid had gone. So uh, we had to take it as a compromise. Um, uh, during the planning preparation, obviously, we, we, we had a, we had a uh, uh, you know, what if scenarios. So basically, because our, our, our sit reps weren't getting through, in theory, what would happen? There would be a, a helicopter would come in to an emergency RV uh, three o'clock that morning, uh, about fifteen kilometers away, and the idea would be would be you just exchange radios, and then because we're, we're there fourteen days, doesn't matter, we're there fourteen days. They would exchange radios, they would go, and then we you know get back to the LUP and carry on. So I'll take four, you know four of us to go and do that that exchange. So I thought, okay, right, what we're going to do now? We had about an hour and a half till last flight. So what we got to do now? is get to that ERV, uh, start making distance, because we could hear, you know, there was a bit of commotion going on now. There was a bit more sort of you know, vehicle movement than, mm. than what was expected. So let's get out now, start making distance. We have the cover of darkness, uh, hopefully within about an hour, an hour and a half. Just crack onto that ERV and then get on the, the, the aircraft. You know, literally the, the loadmaster, he's not going to hang around, just grab hold of him, you know, and then he'll be shouting at the pilot, get everybody on. And we'd have to move further along. So we're not going back to Saudi. They're not going to take us back to Saudi. We've still got to carry on with the job. Okay. So we move along further and, and try and find another place. Uh, but it never happened. We had, our, um, we had our first contact. We had two uh, BMPs of Russian personnel carriers come down and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a truck, soft skin sort of vehicle. Um, there's nothing you can do but stand your ground. You know, it's like it's pointless running. <laughs> it's yeah. like you're in the middle of the desert. So um, one of the, the one of the patrol initiated the contract. We had sixty six each. Um, you know, any armor rocket each. Um, so he initiated the contact. Um, luckily, uh, we you know we just started getting rounds down. Quite frankly, uh, and then uh, uh, certainly one of the first BMP stopped. There was no direct, you know, there was, they, were, they were taking hits, but, you know, 66 weren't doing that yeah. much, but it was confusing them. It was stopping them. That's the main right. thing. Uh, and then we had, uh, we had, um, uh, we had two, you know, five, five, six minimes that were just trying to hit it, just trying to get those optics. So that's all you could do. Uh, and then we just went for it. So we fire maneuvered, um, uh, getting a white foss in there, you know, all that, that, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and then see what happens the other side, quite frankly, during the reorganization. Uh, uh, we got, we got, you know, the confusion was great. Everyone was confused, quite frankly, yeah. us included, because yeah. uh, all the white phosphorus smoke was out by then. And then uh, it was clear what we weren't going to do is then make this ERV, because it, it, it'd be clear, you know, that was south. So they'll know they'll be heading south. So what we've done, we boxed it and we, we, we started to put in our escape and evasion plan, yeah. which um, the UNE plan was going to what's what we would call a, a war RV. And the war RV is normally the American or the British embassies in the nearest country of safety, which right. ironically was, was Syria at, wow. that, at that stage. Amazing. And normally what happens, you have, uh, you're given um, uh, proof statements and uh, uh, you, you'll get to those embassies. You won't knock on the door because they won't let you in. So you have to jump the fence or something, quickly <laughs> hug a tree, and just keep shouting out these these statements. Okay, and then hopefully, okay. once you get taken through the get taken through the system. So we were heading for the war RVs in 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 Syria. Uh, during that time, as we, as we're trying to get up to the the, the border, um, we uh, there were three three were killed. Um, uh, 
four were captured, myself included, and only one eventually made it across the border and got to the uh, what was it? The British Embassy, yeah. and then eventually was was uh, taken down to Cyprus to the the British sovereign base down the bottom there. Um, and that first and contact, we, did you drop those big rucks? Did you? How did that? How did that? Yeah, work yeah, out? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, basically, yeah. If, 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 if there's a command which says just just stand your ground. So literally, as the, the command goes out, stand your ground. Everybody drops them. You know, you've got a quick release. Just drop all that gear, and you've got your your your, your equivalent of your your, your harnesses on. So yeah. you've got You've got you've got water, twenty four hours of food, uh, ammunition. So the priorities are ammunition, food. Uh, so ammunition, water, food, uh, and you've you know you you've got your your basic field dressings, that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, your morphine, your omlipon is around your neck anyway. So everyone's got two omlipon on them, all that sort of stuff. So you're able to operate uh, with with that stuff. So the gunners, you know, we, we had uh for the for the gunners we had we had a you know a box each so people were just taking that out and just shoving it down their front you know take the belts out just shove it down the front some of them had time to do it some of them didn't you know so we had we had ammunition uh, uh, for the uh for the 556 guns um and and that's it you just got to stand your ground and the the, the it's, it's an interesting way that that it works within uh, uh the, you know the, within the regiment where the the command structure, you know, there was two guys there who were perfectly capable of being command as well. Um, but the way that the command structure works is that once you're operational on your ground, on the ground, there's only one voice. So you can agree with it or you can disagree with it. It doesn't really matter because the only way to keep integrity of a patrol and hopefully keep people alive is to do what's being said. And then if anybody survives, great. You can argue about it later on. If everybody's dead, nobody knows it's a pop-up, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it's so. It, but in the planning and preparation stage, everybody has an input because they're allowed to because uh, everybody's got a vested interest. But even at that stage, the commander go, okay, right, this is what I've heard. This is what we've got to do. Uh, you know, that's the mission. This is how we're going to do it. Then if people agree with it or not, they go with it. Yeah. Um, because otherwise it's just going to be a total cock up and people are going to die. So that stand your ground order, whether people agree with it or not, everybody does it. And then from that, you know, they start preparing. And then, you know, everybody knows they've just got to stand there and fight. Uh, that's hence, you know, one of the, one of the guys, uh, he's dead now, uh, Bob Consiglio, uh, one of the, the uh, patrol who initiated it with a 66. Said, well, it's going to happen. Let's get on with it sort of thing. And then off, off it went. Wow. And is this near dusk or is it dark at this point? And no, uh, we had we had about oh, about another 40, 45 minutes before it was dark. So um what we done, we boxed it. So we started heading south as if they would think we're heading towards um uh, Saudi anyway. So as soon as it was dark enough, we then started box around to head just literally on a compass bearing northwest. Because we knew if we head due northwest, we would hit the the the, the Syrian. Uh, the Syrian border. Mm -hmm. And at that stage, before we went out, um, we were told that the CIA would have people on the Syrian side ready to pick up people like damn pilots, people mm -hmm. like our, our, ourselves. So we said, okay, how do we identify the CIA uh, guys who are, who are ready to, to pick up the runners? And they went, oh, it's going to be easy because they're going to put white sheets outside their rooms. <laughs> I thought, well, we give that one a miss. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, anybody who's been out in that a, area. Because everything was so quick and it was all about just getting out there. And you go, yeah. well, we give that one a miss. We're just, we're just crack on to, you know, to the embassies. But um, so, we, yeah, we just started heading northwest, really. Um, and then we, you know, we, it, 
one of the one of the guys who it wasn't it wasn't a a, a wound a gunshot wound or anything but badly damaged uh, a leg with all the running around because obviously it's not desert it's that shale and rock yeah, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so he, he was he was a bit damaged. Um, we then had snow instead of the rain. The, one of the reasons why the the uh, uh, advance back into Kuwait was was delayed a bit because of all the rain. You know, because we were so far north, our one was snow. So uh, we had a guy who's starting to go down with hypothermia. And your gear isn't ship. what it is today, for those listening. It's uh, if, if someone just recently left special operations with a with a great kit today with uh, all sorts of layering systems and yeah, all yeah, this yeah. technology. No, it was a little different back then. I mean, you guys no, were... No, you no, know, jacket, actually lot. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, what, what did you have at this point is to keep you warm? Well, literally a bit of Gore-Tex, and that was it. Um so we broke SOP, standing operation procedures. And again, it's going back to that, that, that if you like, that form of democracy within the patrol saying, right, we've got the, the you know, this, this guy, Bob, is not going to survive the night. What we've got to do, we've got to get some hot fluids down him. We've got to start sorting him out. So we were doing body exchange, you know, heat exchange, all that sort of stuff in, a, in an old tank berm that the Iraqis would build to put their tanks in with the war with Iran, wow. you know, so they, they would be fixed positions. Mm-hmm. So he was in one of them trying to keep out the wall. And so, look, we need to get a flame on. We need to, in theory, expose ourselves, because um, otherwise he's going to die. So the patrol's decision is to, to let that happen, knowing the, the, the consequences. And obviously, we're trying to conceal it as much as possible. So we started getting hot fluids down him. Uh, and he was, he was doing all right, actually. Um, but then we just got to make distance at night. You know, again, every time, make distance at night, hide up in the daytime. Um, at one stage, we could hear loads of fast jets coming above us, uh, way above the cloud cover. And I'm trying to work out in my head what our rack is. You know, as the air war started, I weren't too sure. We had TACBIs, which are the tactical beacons that can talk to uh, air crew, the international distress uh, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 frequency on it. So I thought, right, okay, well, I'm going to pull it and I'm going to talk and see if we can get a pilot up. So there was just too many. I could hear just too many in the air for them to be a rackers, surely. So I pulled it, um, you know, any call sign, this is Bravo 20, a ground call sign um, over. And we've got a faint American voice. And the good thing, it came back with our call sign. You know, say again, Bravo 20, say again, Bravo 20. Wow. And then obviously it gone. Wow. It gone. And then there was a there was a there was a an airfield that was kilometers away, way, 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 way in the distance. Uh, uh, called H2, I think, which was designated as H2. And they were going to hit that because then you could see in the distance. You know, the air ward started and they starting to hit these, these, these airfields. So I thought, right, at least they have a position and they've recognized the call sign. And then we'd, we'd just crack on. Um, and we got really 11 kilometers uh, where we really then started to hit a lot of problems um, with, with a continuous contacts. Uh, the patrol had split. We were then fighting in like twos and threes to get to the uh, to, to get to the border. By then, um, uh, the the guy Bob Consiglio with the um, uh, with the hypothermia who initiated the contract. He had the he had the minimi five five six minimi in front. So basically, we'd have him up in front. If when we hit a contact, he would just start getting rounds down so we could get out and then start. Literally, we weren't going to take him on. We're just going to get the rounds down and run and try and box around the, the problem. Yeah. Um, trying to get to, to the border, but literally he, he you know he had about twenty five rounds left by then, and wow. so he's, he, we, we hit a contact. He started, and then he took a round um, 
we took a number of rounds. One went into a white frost that he had that went up. Um, you know, he, he was dead. Uh, so we started boxing around. Um, and then literally it was, I got within about two kilometers of the border and you could hear like sporadic little, you know, firefights going on here or there. Wow. Uh, and you know, you can tell the signatures, you know, between sort of, you know, the 7.62 short where the Iraqis were firing and our 5.56. So you could see what was going on. There's a lot of confusion. Um, but it was becoming first light. And what I didn't want to do was get caught on the border trying to get into Syria because I, I didn't actually know what physically the border was. Right. I didn't know it was barbed wire or, you know. Or anything. I mean, yeah. Anything, yeah. Was- Syria welcomes careful drivers. You know, I, I didn't know what it <laughs> Welcome was. Welcome to Syria. I just didn't know what yeah. it was, yeah. So I thought, right, well, what I need to do is um, hide in Iraq, stay in Iraq for the day, hide up, and then that gives me all night to negotiate the border because it's 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 a political border. It's not a social right. border. You know, I, I needed to get across the border and then I needed to make as much distance as possible away from it. Yeah. So uh, are you guys still dream, all together at this point, or have you had? No, it? no, everybody's split up. So by then we've had um, uh, uh, two were I knew two of, of, uh, were dead. Uh, I didn't know uh, about the, uh, the the third one. So um, we got split in little groups. I was, I was with a, uh, another guy who was, who was a New Zealander, and literally uh, we were maybe about three kilometers from the border. As he was coming up on the rise, what we heard was the commotion, and then they're just, you know, they're, they're, they know there's something out in front, so they're just firing. We then both got down. I went right. I presumed he went left, but he didn't. What he'd done, he got shot in the foot. Um, so he made it a little bit, and he was down. Uh, and they captured him at, at, at some stage later on. As far as I was concerned, he, he was dead at that stage. Yeah. So by the time I got to the, the border, I was on my own. There was an, another two guys that had gone back down uh, to the, well, the Euphrates. And the only way to, to escape as they were getting followed up uh, was to swim the Euphrates. You know? um, and on the other side, what happened was that the, the guy called Steve Lane uh, really suffering with hyperthermia going, you know, going through the, uh, the, the river. Um, so, uh, his mate, well, he broke into one of these little diesel, uh, sheds that were pumping up the water from Euphrates to feed the fields. And so he got in there trying to sort him out, uh, and he wasn't really working. So by the time it come to first light, it, you know, he tried to keep him going for a couple of hours. It was clearly, it was, you know, he was going to die. So what, um, uh, uh, this guy, uh, Dinger done was, was to get out. He had, he had about two or three rounds left, fired him off, which I heard because uh, I could hear it in the distance and 556 five, going off. Uh, I didn't realise what was happening at the time. And then a lot of commotion. He just started running, hoping just to, to leg it. But hopefully what they'll do, they go in and they'll find Steve Lane and hopefully keep him alive. That never happened, whether he was he died you know, at some stage during capture or you know, he, he just died there. You know, nobody really knows. Um, so he, obviously, this, this guy Dinger got caught as well. Um, so there was... Groups, you know, split up at the night time because um, we just had this initial contact, which was exactly 11 kilometers from, from the border, was just like chaos. Um, uh, and then we just carried on moving forward and then obviously running out of ammunition. So uh, I was feeling quite cocky because I thought, again, by four or five o'clock, um, 
I didn't have long until last light, and I thought, well, I can get out and then just get over over the border. But I got a found. I, I still don't know how I was discovered, but there'd been trucks going over this culvert, you know, Iraqis going out looking and all that sort of stuff going on looking for, which they assume were Israelis. Um, and uh, clearly somebody had seen me somewhere, and they come in, they're firing all around the culvert, screaming and shouting. Jeez. You know, when lads get a bit excited, I'm not going to get out because it's just too much excitement and too many rounds going around. You know, you end up getting shot for excitement yeah. rather than anything else. So they wanted me out. I'm not getting out. Uh, they eventually dragged me out. Um, and uh, the, uh, I don't, don't know what you're meant to call it. We call it tactical questioning. Uh-huh. Basically, just getting filled in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I had some teeth knocked out. And, um, uh, right they, away, they, right they, there, they, they take, right outside the covert. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So there was lots of that. Um, uh, so obviously they're taking frustrations out. They've been yeah. taking casualties. They, sure. you know, there's been a lot been going on. So um, uh, I literally I thought I was going to be, you know, be shot anyway. So yeah. taken in a vehicle, taken to a, uh, a border town called Al Qaim, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a military uh, uh, base there, yep. and that's where I met the guy who'd given up. Uh, his own position to try and save this guy Steve Lane in in the in the shed in the oh. diesel shed. Um, uh, so then me and him got paraded through town, um, uh, and the, the air ward started by then. So there was bombing every night now. Um, so obviously the, 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 everybody was taking their frustrations out on us, oh. and we thought that we were going to get shot at the end of it. Sure. So we actually made it worse by retaliating rather than just taking it. Because uh, we thought, well, we're going to get shot anyway. Wow. But what we didn't realize, there was there was uh, a reward that were given for down pilots and, and, and prisoners. Mm. And also, part of our escape kit, we always uh, have gold with us. So we have 20 that. gold. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They, they were straight <laughs> after that. They had, uh, we, we get 20 gold sovereigns that we, we carry. We normally tape them up and put it inside the body on a, on a thin belt. Mm-hmm. So it's like bribe money. So, you know, everybody knows the currency of gold. Um, so obviously they had that as well. So everybody was very, very happy. Mm. Um, and eventually taken to, to Baghdad. We tried to get into Baghdad, um, but we had to come back and wait for a couple of hours because the bombing had started, you know. So, you know, you had the bombing campaign going on. Is that all so one day? Is that all from, from capture to getting or trying? Yeah, to it's capture. Baghdad, yeah, it happened that... all that night. So we literally go through the town. We went back into the, the camp and they tried to get us to the interrogation center that night. Mm. Um, and and the the bombing campaign never ceased. So literally at fir- uh, last light until first light, you just have the allied aircraft coming in, you know, just taking everything out. Um, so we sort of sat there, and it almost on the you know on the horizon looked like a you know a Second World War scene, yeah. you know, with all the, the sort of the flashes and the explosions. Yeah. Um, uh, and then we got there uh, into the uh, interrogation center. Um, uh, and put into individual rooms, um, into these cells. And there was already somebody there. They were getting filled in, and, and it was clearly, uh, you know, a, 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 a European voice. Mm-hmm. And it was another member of the patrol who'd been captured earlier on. And so there was three of us in the interrogation centre. And uh, what they wanted to know was, uh, well, for us to admit we were Israelis. Uh, to bring Israel in the war, and it to, and, and looking back, it sort of made sense, you know, because we weren't dressed as as as, as regularly as as like you know uh, uh, you know 
European Brit soldiers or whatever. A bit ad hoc. We had a bits and pieces, you know, and stuff. So it sort of made sense. Uh, and also the guy who'd been shot with the Minami, uh, uh, Bob Consilio, he was a Swiss-Italian guy uh, from uh, the Brits Royal Marines. And because um, uh, we have a policy we take, you know, the, the, any, any, any um, uh, nationality we take. And then they can get Brit citizenship. I think Americans have the same sort of system, isn't it? That you can join and then you can get American something citizenship. Something similar, yeah. It's so, yeah, we do, we, we do something similar to that. Um, so this guy was a, a Swiss Italian, joined the Royal, Royal Marines and then uh, uh, went for selection. And um, uh, very dark skin, curly hair, and we didn't know at the time, but no foreskin. So he fit the criteria as 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 a Jewish guy from, from Israel. So... Um, what we, we had is uh, we have a cover story. So we kick off with, first of all, the Geneva Convention, the big four, number, rank, name, date of birth, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Funny enough, at that stage, you couldn't give religion, but it would be on your dog tags. Now, it's a really <laughs> crazy sort of system, isn't it? Yeah. So we had all that going on. Um, and then you would break into cover stories. And then and the cover story was that we were medics from all different units, so you could talk in detail about your unit that you come from. You know, I'm a green jacket, I'm a medic. We were all brought together and we were going out right. to try and find down pilots, like a search and rescue team. Right. And helicopter landed and took off and left us and we're just trying to get home. Is it, you know, basically that. Problem we had with that is obviously the West backed Iraq with their war with Iran. So I'm talking about being a green jacket. One of the interrogators are going, well, what battalion was you in? I was, I was in the second you know, uh, battalion. He went, oh, you know, do you know sort of Vivian Richards, uh, Captain Richards? And <laughs> I did. I did. He said, yeah, I, I was at Sandhurst with him, <laughs> you know what I mean? which is our military no academy. No way. That's because incredible. Because we, you know, we, we backed them for 10 years in the yeah. war in Iran. So, you know, lots of problems uh, with the military wow. guys on that. So, but it was just keeping, just keeping at it, really. Uh, and obviously, we, you know, we're all medically trained, so we, you know, we can talk about the, you know, the, the sort of medical aspect of it. The downside really was the the the, the civilians, the secret police. Mm. Um, uh, that was more of a of a, a physical stuff. So we was always handcuffed and blindfolded, stripped. Um, uh, you know, you, you there was these sort of conventions where you know the the the, the guards would come in and, and and kick you about and punch you about, all that sort of stuff. But during the interrogations, you would go in always handcuffed and blindfolded. Um, and we, we were whipped, beaten with a uh, like a metallic ball thing on on, on a stick. Um, my, my my back teeth that were smashed up were pulled out by a guy who said he was a dentist, and he practiced in London for nine years. Mm. You know, again because of this relationship we've had with them back in the war against Iran. So uh, teeth pulled out, and obviously we we had cuts and you know sort of damage during the contacts and 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 trying to get to the border. So all the utilities were, were gone. Um, you know this constant air campaign every night. So they used to have paraffin heaters. They would heat spoons up and then help you with your wounds and burn you on your on on, on your cuts. Um, and it was it was just a, it was again again that con- conduct under capture. Yeah. Uh, that's when I really was really thinking about certainly the French woman and the Phantom pilot, Marine Corps Phantom pilot. There's nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do. It's just trying to keep the integrity of, of, of your mind, really. Um, and also during the, the this week, when you listen to these people experiences, um, 
you know, this thing, you know, the front pile had five years of this. So I'm thinking, all right, I'm on week two or week <laughs> three at this moment. You know wow. what I mean? So, and that guy survived. Yeah. So you're thinking, well, okay, it's not good, but it's not as bad as what he had. And he survived. So that's, you know, you know, let's take the lessons from that and learn it. Um, so we were there about three weeks, just to, you know, around about three weeks. And again, every night getting taking hits in the compound, you know, the bombing was, was continuous. And the whole time um, they keep asking you if you're Israeli, is that, that's yeah, the- Israeli, it changed, it changed after, after about two weeks. Um, uh, I, I don't even know why I didn't think about it before we're going, we're not, you know, we're search and rescue teams We're this basically, um, I've got a foreskin. I said, look, I've got a foreskin. And they're going, what? Well, yeah, we, again, we, obviously in, in Islam, there's circumcision. And so I'm going to try and explain it. Um, foreskin. I said, look, I'll show you. I said, yeah, hang, you know, take the handcuffs off and I'll show you. Um, uh, which was difficult because it was like February now in, in Baghdad and it's pretty cold. <laughs> so I'm like putting it out. And uh, uh, and the guys in this just started laughing and um, shoved a date in my mouth. Uh, I thought, right, well, that was good. Um <laughs> Uh, and it, then he said, right, well, what are you doing here? You know, and then they showed Bob Consiglio's kit. Yeah. You could see. And the only reason I knew that white foss really went up and because all the kit was burnt and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, we just kept with the cover story. We then were moved to, we didn't know it at the time, to a, a prison Abu Ghraib. Um, and that's when we start to meet uh, a lot of um, pilots, shot down mm-hmm. pilots that were being brought in, um, uh, ex- actually exclusively American pilots, uh, a lot of uh, Marine Corps jump jet pilots. Um, and there was a guy called who came in, because, again, conduct under capture. Mm-hmm. What you've got to try and do is communicate with these people in, in, the, you know, in, in the prison as much as possible, you know, who you are, where you're from, what unit you're from. So if anybody does get out, we can then say who we've seen and, and, and right. with names. So a guy got brought in. Um, and uh, uh, there was a guy who was a, uh, a Marine Corps jump jet pilot called Joe Small. He'd, he'd, he'd had his leg broken, his arm broken, and the, the guards were kicking it. And, you know, all that sort of stuff was going on with him. And then the night after, another guy brought in, and this guy was called Troy Dunlap, I think it was. And we're trying to identify who is it. And then, so Troy went, you know, I'm Troy. You know, he was, he was a Blackwall um, uh, search and rescue uh, uh, guy. The, his aircraft being shot down. And uh, and then Joe Joe Small went wrote in Joseph Small, you know, US Marine Corps. He went, ah, oh, sir, I'm your search and rescue. <laughs> it's oh, like, really, really, like, yeah, I know, I know the whole the old <laughs> aircraft. So um, uh, so it, that went on. There was no interrogations there, no no proper interrogations. But again, it's you know they're taking hits in the compound, they're taking casualties. So it was everything from guards coming in. Um, you know, with sticks and battens, that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, there was another guy who wanted to uh, uh, hear me sing songs from Queen, <laughs> you know, because he was a Queen fan, you know. Wow. And then at one side, I had to eat my own feces uh, for a joke. Um, uh, but by the, everybody by then, we, you know, we all got hepatitis anyway while, while we were there. But, you know, clearly that didn't help because uh, it was a joke. And it was going back to that that thing, you know, what the, the you know the French woman and the, and the Phantom pilot said, "She's got no control, you know. So do you not do it, and then get another beating, or do you just do it, you know, and get on with it and do it?" Um, so I decided to get on with it. Um, uh, and you know, we again, the, one of the big problems was the 
uh, taking hits in a compound from the from the bombing every night. You know, there's this thing called JDAM, which uh, is a bit of ordnance that locks onto radars. So you can hear this thing, you know, it's like zip, zip, zip. And then as it gets closer, it's zip, 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 and you're thinking, wow. we're going to get killed here by our own, yeah. own ordnance, you know. Yeah. But it's, uh, but yeah, that was a, every night, just literally you could, you know, you knew it was going to happen within, literally as soon as it was it was last light, it would happen. Wow. Um, and then all of a sudden it happened during daylight. Well, we thought it was bombing, but what it was was fast jets going over Baghdad because the war had happened, and they were going, uh, uh, they were going supersonic, and they were sonic booms wow. over the city. And what they were trying to tell people was down, you know, down below prisoners that it was over, um, which initially I didn't get. I thought they were bombing in daylight, which yeah. was a good thing, you know, because it looks right. Okay, well, there's progress, but yeah, the war, the war was over, um, and the Iraqis done a deal with. Algerian medical staff uh, to come in and treat the civilian casualties, you know, whatever it was, 110,000 casualties, you know, obviously a lot more uh, injured. Um, and the deal was the Red Cross said, well, bring in the, the, the medical staff if you then release the prisoners. So there was an initial prisoner release mm. and there was myself and another Marine pilot was, was the only one left in this part of Abu Ghraib. And we thought, and he was way down. He was right at the other end of the, uh, the, the, the cell line as well. And uh, I thought, well, well, we're going to be here for a few more years now. Uh, and literally, I think it was about four or five days later, there was a second wave of prisoner releases, wow. which we were part of, and the final prisoner release. Um, all of you guys, over, did you know all of, had you seen the rest of your patrol in the, the prison? No, only, only two other members. The, the, other, the, the other guy who was captured was the New Zealander who got shot in the foot. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got to the Red Cross location in Baghdad um uh that he, he 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 was there sort of laying there and there was a, there was a, a another guy from the regiment as well who was part of those half squadron groups okay who'd uh uh who'd been shot on a uh they were trying to hit a, a transmitter station and he'd been shot and captured uh in fact he was a squadron sergeant major wow <laughs> so it no was way. like so he'd been shot he was down um uh, and they captured him so there was there was two guys that, that were wounded that were, were coming out with us and um, uh, we were there for about, I think it was about two days, because it was, it was interesting where the military wanted to get you out, the Iraqi military wanted to get you out because they wanted the medical staff in. But certainly the secret police didn't want you out, and, then, and that's when the conflict started in city. Yeah. So instead of all the tracer going up towards the aircraft, it was going horizontal against each other around the city, where the military were taking on the, you know, the, 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 the secret police side of life. Wow. Um, so we eventually was taken to the uh, to the airport and put in a hangar, and again handcuffed and blindfolded. We were all put up against the wall, and we could hear all the weapons cocking. So everybody thought we were now going to get shot. Uh, uh, and it was interesting, you know, the different reactions from different people, you know, because there was obviously a lot of allied. There were Saudi pilots there, mm. predominantly American and Brit pilots. Um, and the way that different people react, you know, some people just praying, you know, some people starting to sob, and it was it was interesting to hear that 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 array yeah. of, of of different sort of uh, situations. Because the most embarrassing thing was the the one that was begging was a Brit, and he knows who he is, <laughs> but he was you know it was a Brit pilot who was um who, who, who was who was begging and sobbing a bit, and it was one of the American pilots. Uh, who just shouted out like "Shut up!" He said, "The last thing I want to hear is this whimpering." Wow. And 
Uh, I spoke to him when he was on the plane. I thought he was praying, but he wasn't. Um, because he was he was sort of next to me. I, I thought he was gently praying. What he was doing was talking to his uh, granddaughter, who he'd never seen, because the granddaughter had been born during the war whilst he was a prisoner, or uh, well, just before, you know, he was when he was deployed. So he said, "Well, I was just talking to the granddaughter." Yeah, and the last thing I want to hear is this like cacophony of, of like wimping and everything, wow. uh, which I thought was quite cool. Yeah. Actually, it was quite good. That's incredible. And how did you? When did you find out that you weren't getting shot on that wall? Um, how long? Were you- uh, well, they just start, yeah, it was, it was literally it was all over and done with in about two minutes. And they just started laughing, and you could hear them like walking oh. away. And then, uh, uh, and then we were, you know, the Red Cross sort of came back, took over again, uh, and then we were we, we would put on a. Uh, on an aircraft and then flown out the, the Red Cross took us out. It was a Swiss air aircraft uh, charter. And then as we got up, we got up into, you know, sort of, you know, the, the cruising altitude. And then basically we just had, uh, uh, I think it was, it was uh, two Brit, uh, two, two American F-16s and, and, and two tornadoes come down okay. either side of us. Yeah. And uh, with all the insults, <laughs> everybody being written insults. So the pilots are putting up all insults to the pilots that were in the Red Cross aircraft. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> they're being captured, you know, all, all that normal stuff going on, you know. So it was good fun. It was oh, good fun. That's incredible. Where do you guys get out? And are you, are you like, how much pain are you in at this point? Are you, is it, is it your jaw? I mean, did they give you any, anything for your, your when they pulled those teeth or yeah. did they just reach in and yank those things? Yeah, they just yanked them out. Oh. So um, we were, then we, 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 we were, everybody arrived in Riyadh and then we were taken to uh, Cyprus where we've got a, uh, what we call a sovereign base. It's quite a big, Based there with a hospital and all that. So we were in there uh, for about three or four days where the dentist started sorting us out. We, you know, we got wounds checked, um, uh, you know, discovered we had hepatitis, all that, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, psychologists turned up. So we went through that, that period. We were given little uh, day sacks with a watch and a, mm-hmm. you know, things like normality sort of mm-hmm. things. Um, uh, we were there for about four days. Uh, uh, so we had remedial care. And then when we got back into the UK, there was it was it wasn't constant. It was about six months on and off. Um, I had nerve damage in my hands. Uh, I had re- uh, reverse sensation syndrome, where you put them in hot water, it feels cold, and, and vice versa. And wow. my uh, sort of the, the the forefinger and the middle finger on each hand, um, I could I had sensation, but there was no sort of message for strength. So I'd say like a can of soda or something i couldn't open it up i put my finger in no it's there but as i pulled it would just it would just open up so and it was to do with the nerves you know because nerves were severed but they grow from the uh, the base of the skull and then there's a you know regeneration so it was waiting for that and you know sort of getting tested to make sure that was okay Um, is it in cyprus where you find out that uh that chris made it to syria and you yeah yeah yeah. it was actually it was when we flew from when we flew from riyadh uh, we, we so we did the, the Red Cross flight, um, uh, and then we we're on a C-130 to go to to Cyprus. And there were there were you know our guys were already on on the flight, and they're telling us what what exactly happened. And you know, and we actually we went into a debrief immediately, actually with the intelligence guys. And again, it was that stuff. Well, who else have you seen? What have you seen? Blah, 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 that sort of stuff. So by the time we got to to Riyadh, we were fully aware of, of what had gone on. Okay. Um, and the you know the the the, the situation with the, the communications footprint being wrong, you know the frequency predictions. Um, so that was that. We got back, um, and then uh, served another three years in in a regiment in a in an organisation called uh, Revolutionary Warfare Wing. So because of my 
truth experience in Northern Ireland and the Fortin Intelligence Group. It's a small group of people that work for the intelligence service. And uh, you've got two wings, if you like, outside the Sabre Squadrons. You've got counter-revolutionary warfare wing. They're the guys who are trying to stop stuff happening, trying to stop, you know, counter-insurgencies and revolutions and all that. And then you've got revolutionary warfare wing, and they're the guys who are there to start them up, Uh So, which is a lot more easier, (laughs) quite frankly. I've done three years on an RWW, which was great. Um, uh, And then um, the the American administration at the time decided to privatise what was going on in Colombia, and it was called Plan Colombia. So American and Brit companies were given those contracts so uh, I got out after 18 years, uh, basically because I'd done the, the tours in Colombia. And they said, well, do you, you know, do you want to come and work? Same guy, same setup and all that. I went, yeah, okay. Um, so I got out uh, to, to, to do that job. And whilst that, that job, uh, uh, you know, was, was getting started, I wasn't in country at that, at that time. Uh, I was approached about writing the, the, the story. Um, and it was published when I was in, in Colombia. And uh, the publishers rang up and said, the book's doing really well. You know, it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's, I think now it's still the biggest selling war book of all time, all that sort of stuff. And they said, do you want to do another one? And I went, well, what do you think? <laughs> it's a ticket and I'll come back and do it. And that's how it really all started. Man, that's incredible. Uh, but going back to when you land back in the UK, um, yeah. what, how are you met by... SAS, how do they how do they bring you back into the fold and start doing their debriefs? Yeah. And then, what did that feel like? And how what did, what was that like? Because it'd been a while since someone had been since, since something like this had happened. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, what lessons did you pass on um, to the other to to the regiment? Yeah. To what what did you yeah. what did you want to pass along to make sure that yeah. was not forgotten from your experience? Yeah, it, it basically we 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 landed at a, at a military airbase called Bryce Norton, and then we had our because we've got our own helicopters that are based in Hereford, the camp near CS. So the helicopters picked us up immediately. We're back in 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 Hereford, and um, uh, we went in. The commanding officer w- w- was there, and he said, "Look, take the day off. <laughs> you've earned, Tomorrow, you've earned yeah, a day. Literally, right. <laughs> take the day off, because what we didn't know at that time until we got to Hereford." The next of kin, obviously, like all military, we fill in next of kin forms, you know, who to inform if you're dead, all that sort of stuff. The next of kin have been informed that we were probably dead. So they, until we got picked up by the Red Cross, thought we were dead. So they were going through that process. Mm. Um, I said, take yourself back in tomorrow and straight into debrief because everybody else was still in Saudi at that stage. So we then went immediately... um, into debrief with you know military intelligence guys, the the civilian intelligence services, um, trying to piece everything together. Um, uh, again, you know what exactly went on on the ground, what went right, what went wrong, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and we were in debrief for about two weeks. Um, by that time, the squadrons were coming back, and uh, uh, I was given a card of uh, uh, free, it was like a cartoon, sort of Christmas card or birthday card or whatever, of, of three guys in loincloths hanging up, you know, with a Roman sort of guy with a whip underneath. And it's called the Birdman of Baghdad. That's what they've renamed it, you know, because straight away the humor comes of back. Of course. You know what I mean? Because you're there <laughs> and, you know, so all the piss taking happens, um, which was quite nice, you know, because that, all that, that, that sort of, you know, back 
to normality as much as possible. And then it, then what happened was I then found myself giving um, a lot of uh, briefings to different military people. And again, Schwarzkopf came down for the day, briefed him and his guys for the day. That's when we learned about, he said, well, if I knew the, you know, the armor brigade was there, we wouldn't have gone. Yeah. They said, oh, a bit late now. <laughs> All good. But, but, you know, but it, you, know, it, it, you know, it's the same thing. Don't like it, get out. You know, it's just as it, as it is, you know. Um, so uh, a lot of debriefs, different organizations. Uh, it went to the States and done the, you know, the sort of debriefs, different organizations there. And then what happened was um, it got involved in the uh, conduct under capture. Uh, both here in, in the United States, um, the FBI enrichment program. And again, because they've had, particularly in, in Mexico, they've had like agents that have been, mm. you know, taken uh, hostages, uh, got involved in, 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 in that program. And, um, and for maybe about, I don't know, maybe about nine, 10 years, part of the, the free services, the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, part of their training is they got to listen to me waffle on for about like two hours <laughs> on a DVD talking about conduct under capture and, yeah. you know, the, the lessons learned and what works and what doesn't work um, and, and trying to ex- explain it. Basically, you know, I'm, I was just saying about exactly what the, you know, the SOE woman and the, the Phantom Pie were saying, because yeah. they're absolutely right. You've got no control. Just accept that and just keep trying to keep some integrity of your mind because that's all you can do. So it was just repeating what those two guys have said, really. Amazing. And did you come back and say, hey, you know what we need? We need better, we need night vision, we need thermals, we need oh, better boots, absolutely. Yeah, we need all better, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Because because of the the, the way that the, the, the regiment works is it's the first time since the Second World War that all the squadrons, apart from the, the counterterrorism team, all the three squadrons have been involved in the same sort of conflict as a mass. So um uh there were shortages. You know, we had to make our own claymore mines. Uh, we made them, you know, with ice cream cartons and, you know, whatever we could find, you know, bits and pieces, because there wasn't enough claymores to go around. So, and the argument was, well, you're off in six hours' time. If you've got them, you've got them. If you haven't, we'll make some. It's simple as that. So we made them. Um, uh, and, and going around different, um, uh, different, you know, squadrons and all that and saying, well, you know, um, you know, 40 millimeter grenade, you know, for the, for, for the grenade launcher, bits and pieces like that. Um, because it was just such a rush to get out there. You know, all that stuff was sort of, you know, two days behind. So, yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that, you know, working out, yeah. you know, the fact is, well, we need that kit. We need this. Right. Um, if we're going to have a, a major conflict again where you've got like three squadrons doing the same job, without a doubt. Incredible. And then who, who approached you initially when you're uh, when you were in the UK or Columbia or however that that, that worked out? Uh, about writing the book and, and said, oh, and had you thought was, about it yeah, already it was, or was it something that? Yeah, said- no, it was, yeah, it was a general. Yeah. It was, a, it was a general. So basically it was a, a an ex general, um, who was at one stage was director of special forces. Mm. And, um, I got an invitation to go to his house for a dinner, which it, you are going, you know, you will be there. At, <laughs> right. You, know, you will be there at seven o'clock. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You are going, whatever you want. It was even a, like a dress code, you know, smart, and casual, you know, yeah. it's that sort of thing. Right. So anyway, it turned up. And basically, um, by then I was, I, we call it premature voluntary release. So it's a contractual thing. You sign a bit of paper and, you know, it's sort of, you know, uh, you can, you know, withdraw your contract. Because we are, 
we can only serve 22 years, whether we like it or not, okay. um, as, a, as, a, as a regular soldier. So I've done 18, so it's quite easy to sort of do that paperwork. He said, well, you, you know, your PVR. And I went, yeah, explain the, 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 the job that I was going to, which is quite a normal thing as well. And it happens in, in American Special Forces mm-hmm. as well when these jobs come up and people are sort of, you know, uh, uh, asked whether they want to get out and do them. Um, and he said, well, look, I've got an idea. Why don't you write about your experiences with uh, on the ground with Bravo Two Zero, and I'll write about what went on uh, in the bigger picture, went on in Riyadh and what was going on and all that. And I thought about it. I thought, well, he's not doing it for my benefit. <laughs> and so I I phoned up uh, an RAF navigator who him and the pilot, a tornado pilot, they'd already published a book and they were still serving in the RAF. It was still a, it was a like a uh, a, a thing and I said well how does this book business work and literally explained you know the normal thing well you know exact same stuff you know getting an agent and all that sort of stuff so uh, uh I went back the next day and I said well actually if I do it I'll do it myself thanks for the offer but I'll do it myself and then just explored it really and, and got on with it wow that's incredible I mean yeah everybody I know uh read this book Bravo to zero absolutely incredible and I, I think you're right it is the the best-selling uh story of modern war ever, ever written. Um, and, and then what is, of course you do immediate action after that. That's the second book that you talked about yeah. when they said, do you want to do another one? This one's selling really well. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was amazing. Of course, all of us read that as well. And then somehow you start consulting on film, you do heat. And yeah. of course that's the, 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 the scene, everyone will know what I'm, what I'm talking about after the bank robbery is one that still holds up today. And was one of those things that kind of changed the industry as far as realism and yeah. film and you got guys using their sights, bringing the rifle to their shoulder, uh, changing magazines, you know, uh, shooting exactly. no moves, more Hollywood all those yeah. things. And, uh, and you were a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was great. It was, um, it was almost like a, a, a weird film anyway, because I, I got a, a message saying, well, there's this, this director in Los Angeles and he wants you to come over and work on a film with um, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. And, uh, you know, as you would do, go, yeah, all right, you know, <laughs> leave it at that. But literally about a week later, the script turned up and uh, and they said, you know, no, he's serious. This guy, Michael Mann, he's serious. I'm like, okay. Um, and so we, we arranged a phone call, phoned him up, and he said, look, there's three things I want you to look at is the, you know, the very first armored car robbery, the platinum robbery, and literally on the script, it just went World War Three. He said, this, this is what I want. And anything else, make your notes up and come over to Los Angeles. So I thought, even if nothing happens, at least I'll get a free trip to <laughs> Los Angeles. So I made my notes and I went over and, and was there for a couple of weeks um, and sat down with, with, with Michael Mann, going through it all. And um, we had those big uh, Tonka toys, you know, those big sort of trucks yeah. and, you know, on the carpet and moving them around, that sort of thing. And, he, uh, and then he said, great. He said, well, do you want the job? I went, yeah, all right, of course, you know, as if. Uh, and, and literally was there for seven months. So it's all of the actors, because Michael Mann is, is just, just wants everything so right. So all of the actors, everything you see on the film, he wanted the actors to be able to do live. So we'd go down Orange County ranges um, and really start off with basic pistol work and basic sort of, you know, uh, rifle work. Um, and then coming in, you know, drawing the, you know, uh, punch and draws, all doing all CQB stuff. Um, moving on to actually driving, you know, Lincoln Counter uh, town cars into the range, shooting through them, people getting out, taking on fire maneuver forward, uh, live ammunition. 
no idea how much insurance cost. I have no <laughs> idea, but it was like he wanted it. That's what he wanted. So all of the certainly the you know Val Kilmer become like without a doubt a competition standard shop. Without a doubt, it was just because what he said. He said, "Look, if I do a scene, because I'm not the principal actor, if the principal actor's looking good, they're going to use that scene. So I've got to be really on top of my game." And um, uh, and, and literally, I was uh, I was in uh, North Carolina, and I was doing um, one of these uh, uh, lectures uh, with the Eight Second Airball, and I'd never seen the film in its entirety. So I went to the to the movie theater in, in Fayetteville. And obviously all full of like, you know, soldiers and, and the Val Kilmer sort of moment where he's firing and he changes the magazine. Yeah. We've got all these soldiers going, yeah, you know, and waving and shouting around. So I got on the phone, biggest mistake I made in my life. I got on the phone and rang uh, Michael and I said, just an amazing reaction, you know, during the firefights and all that. But because Michael was such a perfectionist, he goes, at what point did they scream? At what point did they jump wow. up? I said, I don't know. It's just during the, <laughs> just, you know, people are just enjoying it, but he wanted to know the exact moment, you know. But, uh, and it, yeah, and from there, I started getting, you know, involved in, you know, Black Hawk Down and some Jason Statham films and um, uh, just uh, uh, a lot of the sort of pre-production. Because right. I, I found a lot of the the the... the Time on on set can be quite boring, actually. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and you're sitting there, right? but pre-production stuff I really, really enjoy. You know, what that training and the, yeah. you know, uh, uh, just talking about the script and the characters and all that sort of stuff is really, really good. Oh, so um, uh, yeah, it was. I don't know. It's a, and then landed up there for about three years, I think, in Los Angeles. You know, just doing one film after the other. It was great. Wow. And then during that time, do you start thinking about writing uh, some fictional, some thrillers, yeah. the the Nick Stone series, yes. and then the Tom Buckingham yeah. series later? Yeah. Um, is that, does that all start yeah. to kind of come into fruition? It all started. There? It was um, Michael Mann who helped me. Oh, you know, okay. it's because I was thinking about it. And what I didn't have was the concept of structure. Mm. And, um, uh, and I was, and, and again, you know, there's so much in Los Angeles where you can go out and you look and there's classes and there's like, he said, don't worry about it all. He said, look, he said, everything's based on a three-act drama. No matter, it can be five-act, six-act, it doesn't matter. It's all based on the three-act drama. So have a prologue, set it up, have a traditional three acts, have an epilogue, short and sharp, before they get bored. That, <laughs> and that was it. So, that's fantastic. Said, so that's great advice. That's, that how, that's how I set mine up. <laughs> yeah, he said, and he said, don't think about chapters. At the end of a chapter, he said, that's where the commercial break comes. Think of it that way. They're, they're, not, they're not paragraphs, they're scenes. End of the chapter, commercial break. He says, because all of us, without realizing it, understand free act dramas and, and because we've been exposed to TV all of our lives. Yep. So he says, we know it, whether we know it or not. Yep. So use it because the unconscious will recognize it straight away. Oh, no, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And I, you know, I grew up with that and I didn't need to study uh, that three act dr drama and a prologue epilogue. It's just what I enjoyed being a reader my entire life. So, um, exactly. that totally makes, yeah, that's a, that's amazing. And, and I think you have, you have over 30 books now. Is that, is that yeah. right? And then a bunch of yeah. other different projects going on in different industries. And yeah, I mean, yeah. you're a busy I, guy. Well, there's, um, the Tom Buckingham series is now, is, that, that was a movie that came out, uh, all about two, three, well, during lockdown. Yeah. So that, or that was actually, it was number two. That was behind uh, Wonder Woman in the US. Awesome. Netflix are going to show it, uh, I think, at the end of August at some stage. And I've just sold. Um, that's Red Notice, uh, right? Red Notice, yeah. I've just sold a short story that I've done on, on a reading initiative for, you know, for, for adults trying to get them back into reading called The Gray Man. 
And that's just been bought by Bollywood. So I that's haven't amazing. got a clue what they're going to do with it, but it's really, yeah, really exciting. I'm really looking forward to that. That's amazing. I saw the gray man and I wasn't sure what that was. Uh, so it's a short yeah, story. You know, amazing. It's just a short story. Yeah. They're, they're called quick reads. And what they're trying to do is encourage adults to get back into reading or certainly people who find it difficult reading. Um, the style sheet's very restrictive. So it's easy to keep with the story and you know, there's not too many uh, multi-syllable words. And it's trying to encourage readers back. Wow. Uh, and yeah, well, Bollywood have come and they said, well, we want to turn it into a film. Going, yeah, it'd be great. Do we have elephants? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. That's fantastic. I love Bollywood. It's great. That's amazing. And then is that the, because uh, you've done a lot of foundation work also with, with charities and getting people to read. Yeah. And it's the, the reading agency. Is that one that you were yeah, involved with? Yeah, the reading agency. It's, you know, the reason I weren't flying helicopters as I thought it was going to be in the army was it, it was only when I got to the, the, the junior leaders battalion that I was told that the reason that we were all there was that we all had the reading ages of between a nine and an 11 year old. Huh. And uh, the interesting thing, uh, which was, you know, it was my fault because I just didn't care about school, but the interesting thing, you know, that the, the, within, within the, 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 you know, the, the, the military of a whole in the UK education is amazing. It's the biggest adult education setup in Europe. It's huh. incredible. So they say, well, this is what we do. We, you know, we all read and write here. So what we're going to do is start in the read and write. Because the only reason you can't read and write is because you don't. Wow. So we're going to do that now. And you go, yeah, okay, because you're in the army now. And that's how it all started. So I started oh. doing stuff within the military um, because they, you know, the, 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 the numeracy industry is still, particularly in the infantry, that's why they're there, is, is, is still low. So uh, started in infantry and then it spread out into sort of schools and prisons and, and that sort of stuff. Because, uh, you know, obviously because I was incarcerated when I was young as a teenager um, uh, within this ball system, um, I go into prisons and talk to prisoners because wow. our biggest occupational group in prisons are ex-military guys. Okay. So it's going in and saying, look, use this time to get this education up and, and you know, so at least you can get out there and maybe compete. Wow. That is incredible. And in 2003, did you, did you go back to Iraq? Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You went back I, to the place where the guys yeah, went and put a yeah, memorial. Went back, yeah, I was asked to go back. Um, and I became a, um, an advisor uh, uh, to our, our Ministry of Defense here for about, on and off for about 10 years. Um, going back to Iraq and then obviously, you know, when the commitment in Afghanistan started. And basically, it's because of the... The, the, the sort of relationship I've got with the the, the infantry. Um, and again, it, you know, like all infantrymen, they're all sort of young guys, you know, sort of 18 to 21 sort of thing, you know. Um, got a good sort of relationship uh, with them. What it was trying to work out was what were the operation, immediate operational requirements for the infantry. Mm. And it was all the, the silly stuff, you know, um, that gets lost in the mix, but really, really important to an infantry guy. Um, so even the Osprey body armor system didn't have quick release straps to get it off quickly. And two guys drowned, uh, in the canals in the green zone in Afghanistan, because they couldn't get them off in time. So it's trying to go back to the MOD and say, look, this is what the people need today now. And this is how we can do it and try and, and, and bits, you know, little attachments for weapons and just to make life easier for, for the infantry guys. Um, so it would go backwards and forwards, um, uh, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know, sort of once, sometimes twice a year yeah. for these trips. So, you know, get out on the ground, but, you know, go on the patrols with them because after the requirements, they don't really need. They just think, well, let's see if we can get it. But actually it's what we can get you now that that, that really going to help. 
Um, and, and yeah, it was really good, actually. I really enjoyed it. And on one of those trips, don't you go to a memorial where the uh, the SAS guys yes. put up something for? Uh, yeah, they did. Yeah, there's on, on the bank you you freight is where um uh the uh, the guy dinger and, and and steve lane you know the two guys who crossed the euphrates who tried to escape so basically uh at the end of the um uh the, the well the, of the, the the major onslaught as soon as baghdad was taken so uh special air service were operating in in that area just coming down south of al-qaim so they built that calm and uh what they'd done they booby trapped it put an ieds in and made sure everybody knew Jeez. so that's why it was still standing amazing <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. What did it feel like to go back to that spot? It was quite strange, actually. Yeah. It was, um, uh, so we went back to Al-Qaim, obviously to that spot, trying to work out exactly on the, where on the border, where, where, where I was captured. I sort of got an idea. It wasn't exact, but, um, obviously the, the, the camp, um, the, the military location in Al-Qaim was now obviously, you know, that had been overtaken now. There was, you know, civilians living in it now, all the, Iron work had been taken out, and uh, you know it's uh, you know people were, were sort of making the best they can there, and then went back to um, Baghdad to the interrogation center wow. that had been turned into a holding center um, uh, by an American cavalry unit. Actually, they, they they were using that as a holding center for um, uh, for insurgents, you know, for Iraqi insurgents. So that was interesting going back in in there. Um, into the interrogation rooms because it's they're exactly what you would expect. You know, there's hooks in the walls, there's all that sort of stuff. Because of the war with Iran, all of the interrogations had to be physical, you know, because they couldn't play mind games with these guys. They just had to get in there and grip them physically for information. Jeez, what did it feel back like going back to that spot? That was strange. Yeah. That was strange, actually, because I was trying to work out, because obviously always blindfold handcuffed. Uh, after a while, it could work out the steps and, yeah. you know, going across the open ground and all that. So I could work out what the, the cell that I was in and, and the corner I was in. Incredible. Um, and, you know, interestingly, there was... There was, you know, there was, there was more bloodstains there now, obviously, you know, because they've, they've had their own sort of internal problems. And you used to go past in a, in a corridor and I used to bump against, um, uh, you know, metallic objects as it was getting pushed through. And what I discovered, they were freezers. And the, uh, the unit that had, had, had taken over the area, they said they, they bought out about 14 bodies uh, out of the freezers. Jeez. Um, when, they, when they overtook it, because the guys, what they were doing during the interrogation, yeah. they died. They just found in a freezer. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Ah, yeah. That is absolutely incredible. Um, and you, I, I, before I let you go, I mean, I sincerely appreciate you spending all this, this time with me. It's, it's uh, such an honor. Um, as this, this week right now, and this, this will publish in a, you know, a week or two or three, but um, we're watching Afghanistan and we're watching this, yes. this, uh, it, this disaster as we, as we had 20 years to prepare to leave. And now it looks like what it looks like. Uh, and we're all watching it real time. Um, what are your thoughts on that uh, withdrawal, especially coming from, you know, the UK perspective uh, of, you know, three incursions in the, the 19th and early, early 20th century into Afghanistan, yeah. and then being right there fighting alongside of US forces for the last 20 years and then all of a sudden, the you know the U.S. deciding to one leave and then two do it in a way that looks like we could not have done it uh, worse if we had been actively trying to make every mistake possible. Um, what, what are you thinking as you watch all, all this transpire? Yeah, I, it, it is. You know, I think it's on, on two levels, really, isn't it? It's obviously the, the the emotional level where there's you know all that blood that has been spent. Um, uh, you know, really trying to do the right thing. 
So, you know, at that, at that, even at that sort of really sort of infantry level, you know, schools open, you know, medical care, all those sort of things and, and, and sort of troops getting emotionally involved with that within the Afghans and, uh, you know, and training the ANA, the Afghan National Army, getting ready to, to take over. So there's all that emotional thing where, you know, the, the, you know one of the, if you like, the, 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 the problems with a democracy is that you've got, you know, the politicians where, they, you know, they don't have friends, they have interests. So you know, countries are interests, they're not friends. So our interest now has gone. Mm. So what that leaves is that emotional level of people that are, you know, not only dead, all that blood spill, but actually, you know, the people that are both physically and, and mentally suffering because we have exactly the same problems as, as you know, uh, US veterans, you know, uh, veterans have with obviously the, the you know, injuries um, and, and the aspect of, of PTSD. So we have those sort of problems. Where people think, well, was it all worth it? But um, it, you know, interestingly, it, it's from a from a practical sense. I'm thinking, okay, well, because of the Doha Agreement, we knew it was going to happen. So the way it's happened, uh, you know, nobody wanted that way. However, you've got the Afghan political and the military leadership not pulling their weight. And why on earth would the Afghan military then start to pull away? So if there's no will to actually fight for their own country, this is one of the reasons why the Taliban's come in so quickly, because there hasn't been that resistance as we thought it was going to happen. So, uh, but that's the, the practicalities. You know, we're, we're, we are where we are. The interesting thing now is to see what the Taliban will do. Obviously, there's all nice words at the moment. That remains to be seen. But on that whole thing of the great game and the reason why the Brits were there and, you know, from sort of, you know, the 19th century onwards, you know, part of that great game. Taliban are already talking to the Chinese. They're promising big infrastructure yeah. uh, situations. Chinese embassy hasn't closed down. Yeah. The Russian embassy hasn't closed down. They're still operating because mm -hmm. they're, they're still talking because they're looking at filling that void. And maybe the bigger problem will be what happens when that void is filled by, by those countries as, as opposed to, to the West, uh, which remains to be seen, really, isn't it? But it, it's, it, it, it is a problem. It's a big, big problem. Yeah. So tough to watch. So tough to watch. And yeah, uh, much so. before I let you go, so Bravo 2-0, absolutely incredible uh, immediate action. Seven Troop, you wrote a little a little later. And then, of course, the, the Nick Stone series, Tom Buckingham series, everything you have going on. But uh, Bravo 2-0 made such an impact on a whole, an entire generation of those who go stand up to defend their countries. But there's this one, I never, I've never forgotten the last line, which is absolutely brilliant. And I just want to want to read that um, because from first read to today, it's never left me. And uh, you write, this is the very end in the epilogue. And you say, and as for the people who interrogated me, if I met any of them in the street tomorrow and thought I could get away with it, I'd slot them. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's the yeah. best line yeah. to a novel. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. Not, it's not it's a novel. True. I mean, this is you know, nonfiction, of course. Yeah. So the yeah, best true. line ending line ever uh in my humble opinion <laughs> thank it's, you for it's that. fantastic yeah it's complete it's totally brilliant so um and i love it and it, it resonated with me because i know it's true certainly is oh amazing amazing well andy thank you so much for spending all this time with me it's uh it, it means so much to me as i said uh you're an inspiration uh on and off the battlefield to to so many of us and uh love what you're doing and i'll keep following and keep reading and uh if you ever need anything Please reach out. I am uh, standing by.
Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been good. Awesome. Really good. Really enjoyed it. Welcome to the gear highlight section of the Danger Close podcast. All right. Got a very cool box here from True Velocity. Look at that. Nice. So what is in here, you might ask? Oh, look at that. That's some pretty cool packaging. Awesome. Ammunition made perfect. I am true technology. I am true revolution. I am true science. I am a true warrior. I am true perfection. I am true velocity. That's pretty sweet. All right. Oh, that's cool. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Very cool. And what is in here? I'm guessing it's ammo. Nice. Wow. All right. I'll pull this out here. So check this out. Wow. I'm going to be checking this out. They've invited me down to go check out the factory, see what they're all about. And I am looking forward to that as soon as I finish writing book five. But uh, yeah, this is awesome. My buddy Donnie Vincent has been uh, shooting these for a while. And uh, look at that. It's pretty awesome. So definitely want to check this out and uh, spend a little more time seeing what these guys have going on. But uh, man, I know Donnie is a big fan, which uh, means a lot to uh, to me. So man, True Velocity, thank you for sending and uh, looking forward to sending some of these down range and uh, getting out to see you guys. So thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. Pick up any of Andy McNabb's books, Bravo 2-0, Immediate Action, 7 Troop, Red Notice, wherever you get your books. Follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA or at officialjackcar.com. The merch is at jackcarusa.com. If you liked our conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Be safe. Stay strong. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.